This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Only old people are having sex. This is the continuation of a trend which, when you hear about it, it may sound good, but it's not. There is new data, when I say new data, within the last couple of weeks, uh, from something called the National Surveys of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles. And the top line takeaway is that um, the young people in America today are having less sex than any of their historical counterparts in American history. This includes people that are in relationships. This includes people that are not in relationships. And there are a lot of reasons for this. And I think we've, when we've explored this before, one of the aspects that we've pointed to, and I think it's very apt, is how people tend to interact and socialize with one another. It used to be if you wanted to meet people, both friends and strangers, you would go to, depending on your age, you'd go to a bar, you'd go to a bowling league, you'd go to a restaurant, you'd go to church, you would go to your Rotary Club, a Kiwanis meeting. You were engaged in the community, interacting with other people in society, in person. Well, now... If you want to interact with people, either your peers or strangers, you go to a computer. And it's funny. I have spoken with so many friends of mine lately who have either met their current wife or their current husband or their current fiancé online. And I would say to people from time to time, well, how come you don't just go to a bar and see who's at the bar and... Uh, see if someone wants to talk to you or if you find someone's interesting or attractive looking, just go up and talk to them. And they said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that anymore. I said, what do you mean we can't do that anymore? No, they, if you approach a stranger at a bar without prior uh, an, a prior introduction or prior online communication, they think you're creepy. I said, what do you mean they think you're creepy? No, the way to meet people now is online. And I think what you're seeing here in terms of the sex lives of Generation Zs and Millennials. Uh, Generation Z are people born between 1996 and 2012. And the Millennials are people born, I think, 
from 19, around 1982, right after Gen X, to about um, uh, 1996, roughly. I mean, different lists give you different, um, d- different de- definitions of what's a millennial and what, uh, what other people are. But anyway, Generation Z people, people born between 1996 and 2012, a lot of them don't have kids. They're younger, they're full of energy, and yet they're still opting out of sex in droves. According to the National Surveys of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyle, the average number of sexual partners in 1990 into 1991 was 8.6 for men and 3.7 for women. Now, keep in mind, all of this relies on self-reporting, so everybody could just be lying. But let's assume there's at least some truth behind these self-reported estimates. In 1999, it rose to 12.6 for men and 6.5 for women, and it rose again for women in 2010 at an average of 7.7. But for Generation Z, the picture looks different. One large-scale study published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior found Generation Z were more likely than older generations to report having zero sexual partners. And according to a 2022 study of U.S. teenagers by Love Honey, that's, I imagine, a non-scientific poll, one in four people aged 18 to 24 has never had sex at all. The label Puritine, P-U-R-I-T-E-E-N, has even been trending on social media alongside TikTok videos about celibacy. Recent YouGov data revealed, and this is not just an American thing, because the YouGov data revealed that the average number of, for people in the UK is now three for women and five for men. So this is, I think, um, okay, let, let's look at it objectively. Young people are not having sex, at least not nearly in the numbers that people were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. What does that mean? Well, for starters, that probably means there's there are fewer incidents of pre, premarital pregnancy. That's certainly a good thing. That could be something that's very tough on everybody involved. Presumably, that will lead to a similar decline in sexually transmitted diseases. Also a good thing. Beyond that, I find the implications of this very troubling. Because remember, this is applying to people uh, both in terms of single people and people in relationships. And one factor that people are citing as part of this is... The prevalence of young people, but especially young men, turning to pornography to meet their sexual needs. Now, I'm not for going out, especially if you're a young person, 19, 20, but this includes millennials. This goes all the way up to people that are 40, 45 years old, these numbers. I am not for going out and trying to just have anonymous sex with as many people as you can in some sort of meaningless existence. Not at all. That being said, if you're giving me the choice between having a 22-year-old that is addicted to online pornography versus someone, a young man or a young woman, 
that learns how to interact with people in person, that learns how to talk to people in person, that learns how to charm them, that learns uh, what makes a woman smile, that learns what makes a woman laugh, that learns how you react when you behave a certain way, like uh, holding a door open or uh, when you keep a date on time. And the behavior that you learn in the courtship process is so important, I think, for every area of life. And those, quite simply, are not behaviors you learn by watching online pornography. On the contrary, what – again, I guess there are so many different varieties of pornography. But my concern is that a lot of young people who aren't having sex on the regular – but are watching pornography regularly. My concern is that this is setting up unrealistic expectations for what sex is supposed to be like. And when these people finally start having sex, I think it's going to fall way short, pardon any puns, in terms of living up to what they believe is normal because they've been conditioned by pornography. I find that very troubling. I find the sociological implications of this very troubling. And this is a theme we've hit on quite a bit before. We are seeing a big problem in terms of the American population not being able to replace itself without immigration. And the baby bust, I fear, is just going to continue... In part because young people, people in their prime uh, child-rearing years, as Don Lemon would say, are not having sex and, by extension, not having children. I think this is troubling, uh, very troubling, to be honest. What do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Here is um, the Dr. Marty Klein a sex therapist. This is from October. This is before the most recent numbers were available. But this is when these numbers were already trending in this direction. Dr. Marty Klein is a sex therapist who I guess has a YouTube channel. And he was talking about young adults having less sex. This is what he said. There's a sobering economic reality behind this trend. Today, half of young adults live with their parents. And this started way before COVID. That reduces the number of couples cohabiting and limits the privacy of those living with parents. And both of those mean less sex. Young adults have disturbingly high rates of unemployment and underemployment. Less pocket cash means less courtship, which means less sex. There's also a troubling cultural reality at work now. People are spending much of their free time online, and that also started before COVID. When life online feels rich, meeting people in person can seem just too complicated. And this, of course, reduces sexual opportunities. Fewer young people today aspire to be in couples than they did 15 years ago. Friendship groups used to be places in which young people found other people to date. They provided a chance to learn and practice the skills of communication, reading social cues, and small risk-taking, like revealing that you like someone. They also provided a chance to experience the rewards of small interpersonal risk-taking. He likes me too. Now, 
young people are more likely to hang out in groups without much interest in finding a girlfriend or boyfriend or them friend. There may be friendship and cuddling within such groups, but people are less likely to be sorting each other as potential sexual partners. I find this very alarming for some of the reasons that uh, Marty Klein has cited. So I think we know part of the reason here. Part of the reason is people communicate through being online. As you heard Dr. Marty Klein reference there, they're not going into uh, large clusters where they're meeting people in person. And this was exacerbated by the pandemic and the lockdowns. Additionally, I think um, the research suggests that more and more young men specifically are turning to pornography. And women that do want to be sexually active, or even if you take the sex out of it, want to meet someone to have a relationship with, of the, uh, you know, a romantic relationship with, they are doing almost all of their vetting process online. And apparently only about 20% of the male population that is out there in the online dating universe is considered an acceptable partner. So you have 20% of the male population that their female counterparts view as dateable. The other 80% are angry, sexually frustrated, addicted to pornography, economically having a difficult time, and most likely, according to these trends, living at home with their parents. Does that sound like a recipe that bodes well for the leaders of tomorrow? I can't imagine that it does. I'm curious what you think of these numbers. And I'm curious what, if anything, you think we can do about it. If the reasons behind this are uh, the ones that I've stated, and if you have an alternative view as to what's causing this, you're welcome to offer that as well. But if the reasons behind this are the online culture, the prevalence of social media, and so many men hooked on internet pornography, what do you do about this? Because I I am concerned about what this means for the future of the country. There's so many people concerned about things that are political in nature, the debt ceiling and uh, this bill and that bill. I'm not saying that it's not important. Of course it is. But this has the potential to usher in a panoply of incredibly negative sociological and demographic consequences. So what do we do about it? Uh, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Ernie in Lindenhurst. Hello there, Ernie. Hey, how you doing today? I'm well, um, Yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do with uh, the cost of going out, too, I think. You know, it used to be you spent 40 bucks and went out for the night. Now it's, you know, 150 bucks to go out for a night, you know, a simple night out. You know what I mean? You know that's like a great and all of that. that's a great point. Like bowling, you know, bowling used to be t- uh, three games. You'd go out, spend twenty bucks, have a pitcher of beer, bowl three games of bowling. Now you go out, three games of bowling is uh, you know twenty five bucks and eating food and all that other stuff. I mean, I'm older, you know. I mean, I go out to bars these days, and you know, and there's a lot of people out, but you know, I mean, it's not how it used to be, you know. I mean, uh, 
you know, that's you know, a great point. The, the inflation issue is one that I neglected to mention, but you're right. The data does suggest that people are having a tough time going out on a lot of dates. I mean, if you think about it, if you're if you're a young man and you're expected to pay for that first date, uh, if things don't go well, you could be you could be paying 20 or 30 percent more for one of these uh, first dates than you used to be. And if you don't have the same sort of uh, uh, earning potential that previous generations did, you could be uh, not wanting to make that sacrifice. You think, why don't I stay home, play video games and watch pornography? That's a fair point. Point, Ernie, and it's one I, w- I d- would not have thought of. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I see it because you know, I mean, uh, you know, it's just the way you know you go out. You go out for dinner now. It's eighteen dollars for dinner, and it used to be eleven dollars for dinner. You know, to go out. I mean, you know, I work at night, so you know, go out and grab something, something to eat with a drink, and now it's like eighteen dollars. Uh, I mean, you can't find food for under twenty bucks. Yeah, for a regular meal, you know, and that's just quick, fast food. Not nothing extravagant you know what i mean that's a great point and uh, that's one that i don't know if it's going to be remedied anytime soon the issue with inflation and the economy in general but uh, and that's such a good one so you have one other issue that uh, ernie uh, throws into the hobo stew there all right 800-848-9222 andrew is on staten island hello andrew frank good morning good morning uh yeah, look, monetarily, the, the you know the money thing definitely comes into play, but the, the the porn stuff is is way more prevalent, and especially the stuff that's that's online today. I mean, I you know I I have some. I'm in my fifties. I'm happily married, but look, you know, I was in the dating scene. I'm you know decent looking guy. I had plenty of opportunities. It was yes, it was cheaper to, to go out back then, and uh, yeah, we had you know dirty books and stuff like. But it's a whole different ball game today with uh, with what these kids uh, see online. I have you know a couple of colleagues. You know they tell me stories with their kids, you know, with the trans you know, the, the trans stuff, and it just everything is shoved down your throat. And you know guys guys are very well. I, I can't think of the word, Frank. I don't, <laughs> listen, it, it's it's perverse, and we need God. Basically, these young people today, they need God in their lives. I'm not talking about waiting until you get mad. There's the the whole moral fabric of this country literally right now is down the drain. You know, that's also a good point, Andrew. Thank you. Lest anyone think that this is some newfound trend where only – young people have suddenly found religion and are behaving in a much more traditionally moral way. That's not true at all. These same young people that are not having sex, they have also shunned organized religion. And it's not to say you can't have morality without organized religion. Some of the most moral people I know are atheists. So not saying that, but I think there are a lot of important benefits that organized religion convey in terms of the morality arena. That's a good point, uh, what he mentions. Now, I mean, whether you can make your own determination of whether young people need God in their lives or not. But the reason for the lack of sex is not more religion that is, or more morality. That has not been the case at all. 800-848-9222. Deirdre is in New Jersey. Hello, Deirdre. They all need Jesus. <laughs> I have a 33-year-old son, and uh, 
he's telling me there are gold diggers out there. He's very successful. And the first thing they ask is, what do you do for a living? Well, I believe that. And that bears out in the uh, in the data where the people that are meeting folks online these days there. And I imagine maybe this is true in person as well, but they only find 20 percent of the eligible dating population to meet the criteria. And I think that includes having uh, the financial wherewithal that these young women are uh, are all about, having the financial wherewithal that they find acceptable. So um, what what is, I mean, that's kind of a, a disappointing situation. Why do you think that's the case now, Deirdre, more than, say, 20 or 30 years ago? Um, because I think, I always told him, find a God-fearing woman. And he laughs. Because <laughs> I am a God-fearing woman. And he's like, he's all crazy. But we men, we have to find the craziness that we can handle. So I laugh with him because he's my son. I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? He said, but I'm telling you. All you women are crazy, but we have to find the one that we can deal with the craziness. Thank you, Deirdre. I appreciate that. You know, look, I don't want to make it sound like a woman that's looking for a partner who has a stable job is a gold digger, right? Because if I had a daughter, do you think I would be encouraging her to, hey, you know what? Go out and try and find that starving artist that you're probably going to have to support in the event that you get married. You know, go out and cruise the homeless shelters. Find a very nice, eligible homeless guy that uh, you can provide uh, his every need for. I get it. I get where women are coming from. But I think it only underscores the prior point that I made, which is right now you have a situation where in the eligible dating pool, only 20%, roughly, of the population out there is meeting, is checking off all the right boxes. And that, I'll advert to what I said earlier, 80% of this young male population is angry, sexually frustrated, living with their parents, and really unattached. And I think that's going to lead to, and I don't want to overstate this here, but I'm I'm serious about this. I think it's going to lead to more mass shootings. I think it's going to lead to more people taking drugs. I think it's going to lead to more people getting drunk. And I think it's going to lead to a situation where young men, especially, you have this textbook, angry young man. And doesn't end in a good situation. All right, 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Rod Stewart. A classic, classic Rod Stewart song. What was life like when you were a young person? Think late teens, early 20s. Well, maybe you did crazy things, like playing music on little plastic discs instead of on a mobile phone. Maybe you actually took pictures with something called a camera. Maybe you used your mobile phone to actually call people. Maybe you bought books at something called a bookstore. And maybe you had sex regularly, which is apparently not a thing anymore. Between 2009 and 2018, the number of teenagers reporting no sexual activity, and this includes single people and those in relationships, went from 20, excuse me, 28.8% to 44.2% among young men and from 49.5% to 74% of young women, according to the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior. But uh, those numbers that I just cited, the 2009 to 2018 numbers, what is what does that mean? I think part of what it means is that that was pre-pandemic, pre-lockdown. And I think when they do this survey and the numbers for 2021, 2022 come out, I think you're going to see a much more pronounced number here. There is a dramatic rise in what's called voluntary celibacy among young people. It has become a hashtag on Twitter, on not so much Twitter, but on TikTok and on social media in general. Is this good? Well, look, I I am a guy that loves to live in that gray area. You know, sometimes people will say to me, hey, and they'll they'll name the most controversial person you could find. And for different people, different person is controversial. For someone, a controversial person is Joe Biden. For someone else, a controversial person is Donald Trump. And I'll say, hey, what do you think of Donald Trump? What do you think of Joe Biden? And depending on the – and even non-politicians could be too, media figures. And depending on the person, I give a, an, analog, an analytical, objective view. And I'll say, well, this is what I think this person does well. This is where I think he's succeeding. This is where I think she needs to do better. And I think, you know, I don't want to make it sound like this is all doom and gloom. Because the fewer people that are becoming teenage mothers, I think that's probably a good thing. The fewer people that are contracting gonorrhea and syphilis at 19, 20 years old, that's a good thing. But overall, I think this is indicative of a more alarming sociological trend towards isolation and towards social alienation. And my fear is, look, I don't think it's an accident that 80% of these young men are not having sex anymore. And every day there's another story about a young male mass shooter. Okay. Uh, And I don't think it's an accident that these people are not engaging in public with people. And we see alarming rates of depression, anxiety, alcoholism and drug use among young people. I think this is a very serious problem. 
And I believe, uh, especially with the help of people like Ernie, who pointed to an aspect that I hadn't considered, I believe we know the causes for this. Although if you want to challenge that, that's fine. But what's the solution? How do we re-engage a generation, really a generation and a half, that doesn't want to interact with people in person? What do we do? I, I, I don't have the answer. Uh, but I do have the question. 800-848-9222. Rich in Manhattan, give me your take on all this. Hi, Frank. I'm going to give you a different take on it. I want to give you a biological take on it, a neurobiological take. Um, that you used the word unattached before, and you're hitting on it, which is that there is a neurotransmitter in the brain called oxytocin. And oxytocin is the attachment hormone. It allows human beings to form attachments. Well, the studies show that oxytocin levels are elevated very high when people are thinking about their telephone, their cell phone. And so you're talking about boys, um, you know, with pornography, they have very strong attachment to the pornography online. And this is neurobiological, and this is very difficult to change. So you're asking for solutions. I don't know what the solution is, but if you go to a restaurant and you look at two people sitting at that restaurant, they're both on their phones. They're looking at their phones. They're not even talking to each other. But this is a true phenomenon, oxytocin. It's the attachment hormone. And it's in human beings. It's the normal, organic way that human beings attach to each other. And we're not doing it anymore. We're attaching to our phones, to YouTube videos, to, you know, whatever else people are doing online there. But so this this is as serious as you're describing it. And I don't know what the answer to this is because it's only getting worse. It's only getting worse. And people are just attached physiologically, neurobiologically to their devices. Rich, and, it's a great point, and, and thank you for the call. I appreciate such a well, well thought out, well uh, logical comment there. You know, on Saturdays, I try to abstain from all electronics, mobile phone, television, even the radio, the computer, even the radio, because, look, I, I'm on the computer all day. I'm on the computer almost, whenever I'm not chasing after my son. I'm on my computer. And um, I recognize how dependent I've become on electronic communications and screens. And so uh, I, I had special circumstances the last two Saturdays because I was, I was traveling and then I needed my phone for certain things. But generally what I try to do, and I'm going to try and do it this Saturday as well, what I generally try to do is abstain from my mobile phone on Saturdays. And it's a funny thing because initially – when you first don't look at your phone for a couple hours, and this is just one day a week, and those of you that are observant Jews, I'm sure, can relate to this and speak to this with more credibility than I have. But when you, when you, I don't look at my phone for the first couple of hours, initially it's very liberating. It's very freeing. You feel sort of unburdened by whatever's coming out of your phone next. But I'll be honest, after a couple hours there's a big stretch where it becomes very anxiety-inducing, where I start to think, what am I missing? Who's trying to get in touch with me? What if someone doesn't realize that I turned my phone off on Saturdays? Well, what am I going to do for tomorrow night's show? 
uh, guests are probably trying to get back in touch with me and confirm that they can be on the show. What if no one's getting back to me? Then I'm going to have to try and figure out something else. So uh, I completely buy what Rich is saying there about oxytocin levels being tied to mobile devices. So uh, that's interesting. Hey, speaking of um, mobile devices, uh, my wife went to the dentist today. We use the same dentist, and they confirm your appointment through text message. And we have a great dentist, and uh, really the dental hygienist is the star of that office, really. But she had a cavity. And how much do you think it costs to fill this cavity? It was something like $350 to fill a cavity. And only, I think, she got a little bit of a break from the insurance company, a little bit of a downwardly reduced rate of $175, but we still have to pay $175. You know, my father was a health insurance executive for 30 years, maybe more, and I have come to the conclusion that the reason so many individuals and even a lot of doctors are willing to embrace socialized medicine, single-payer health care, Canadian way, whatever you want to call it, with all of its faults and all of its problems is because people hate dealing with their insurance company. I have a, I have a, a dermatologist who told me years ago that he, he's very uh, conservative economically anyway. His son is very liberal economically, and his son, is, they're both doctors, and the son was all for single-payer health care. And I said, well, do you guys debate about, debate about this when you get together? He, he said, yeah, we do. But we both know all these insurance companies are a disaster. And once you begin with that stated understanding that everyone understands what a disaster these insurance companies have become in terms of user friendliness, in terms of ripping people off, you are much more susceptible to something like a single-payer plan, even with all the problems that single-payer health care has produced in terms of rationed care and uh, other things for other countries. But, but the other reason I thought of that is because our insurance company we, that we use that covers my family that we get through work, they cover my stuff, they cover my wife's stuff. And I've been taking my son to the pediatrician since he's been born, 17 months. My wife tells me last week that you uh, – oh, I almost said it – said it, I don't want to embarrass them. But I'm not protecting them. They don't do anything for me, so whatever. So our insurance company is denying all of the claims for our son. Now, potentially that's thousands of dollars. Why are they denying the claims? They say he's not covered. Well, what do you mean they say he's not covered? He is. Here's his insurance card. It says his name on it. They're saying he's not covered. So – I think it was finally worked out yesterday, but my wife had to spend hours on the phone. No exaggeration. Hours on the phone dealing with the doctor's office and dealing with the pediatrician just to get the coverage that we're entitled to. Now, I mean, you can understand why people don't want to deal with that. So that was our adventures in terms of uh, insurance land this week. 800-848-9222. Vinny is in Brooklyn. Hello, Vinny. Hi, Frank. It's a very good show and a good point you're bringing up. I just want to let you know. Thank you. I can tell you the exact thing that's going on. It's a cultural racial thing. 
the white race is slowly fading out. It's an evolutionary thing. The white race has had their time, and it's the changing of the gods now. The darker races are rising. So the white race isn't reproducing. I live amongst a lot of Mexicans and black people. I'm a white guy. They have three, four, five kids in every family. I have brothers, and I know a lot of white people. They're not having children. The white race in 800 years will be faded out. Well, why don't don't white people want to have sex anymore? Well, look at your fears, the expense and everything. The darker races, a lot of them are taken care of by government. They're taking kids. The more kids you have, the more you're taken care of. And the white race is struggling. Is is there any data to back up what you're saying? Uh, Observation. You'll see it. Okay. Well, thank you, Vinny. You know what? I, I, you know, it, it sounds incredibly racist, what you're saying, but I'm tempted not to just dismiss it because, you know, just because something sounds racist doesn't mean it's necessarily not true. Because what do you look? There are. Demographic trends that point to white people in the very near future in the United States, for instance, no longer being a majority. That's true. So is there something culturally uh, involving white people that involves them not wanting to have sex? I think that's a fine issue to explore. But when you're coming back to when you then go back to. Well, it's the darker people that are around me that I see. They have four, five, six, seven kids just because the government takes care of them. Uh, You lose me a little bit unless you can point to some data which says that, that that's the case. And then I'm all for having a discussion about it. But to just use this anecdotal observations of... Um, uh, white people don't want to have sex anymore and reproduce, but darker races do, as he said... Again, I'm tempted not to totally dismiss it, but it becomes very difficult when you put it in terms like that. I'm all for exploring it. I mean, including I love politically incorrect subjects, right? I mean, that's what late night radio is for. But uh, you, you can't just say what it sounded like Vinny was saying, white people good, darker people bad which is, I, I realize that's an oversimplification of the point that he was making, but still still a little weird. All right, 800-848-9222. Adrian is in Manhattan. Hello, Adrian. Hey, uh, I had a little different take on it on possible causes. Uh, number one, I think you might have covered it on your show, but there was a study in Urology Times, reporting Urology Times, that there's... Uh, Plummeting testosterone rates amongst men aged 15 to 39, it says testosterone levels showing steady decrease among U.S. males. So that's number one, maybe not enough testosterone. You know, it's one thing to sit in front of a computer screen or or read a porn and do that, but when you actually have to be with another human being, maybe they're afraid that they won't be able Who knows? Or maybe the inclination isn't there because definitely the testosterone rates are dropping, 100%. Other thing is the wide use of pot 
which is damages the mitochondria. And you need that mitochondria if you want to get busy. I mean, you really want to keep it as you know strong as possible. And it definitely, anyone can research that. It's bad for the mitochondria. So that's two, like, maybe physical reasons. I don't blame porn. Guys have, like, Playboys and, and penthouses, and that doesn't, that's a big deal. That, you know, and the online stuff, it's only bad, I think, if it's, you know, if it's keeping them from actually trying to go out in the world. And, you know, you got to face a little rejection. You got to go up to a girl, have her shoot you down. You got to go up to right. another girl and she'll right. say yes, you know, and, and they don't do that these days. So I think smash all the cell phones, like that earlier caller, you know, was saying that the cell phone's part of the problem because it creates the oxytocin. I, smash the cell phone. Stop allowing, you know, we choose what we want to use or don't use. And when you give your kids, from the time they're little, little kids, they all have the cell phones or these screens. That's, you know, there's going to be a ramification. I think we're seeing it, but Andrew, I wouldn't blame the porn. Well, women that, use porn. Women watch porn. I thought it was a little sexist the way they reported that, as though women are dainty creatures and don't, you know, porn is just... But it's not a substitute for the real thing. I, I agree so. with you. I agree with you. Thank you, Adrian. Very well thought out call, and I hadn't considered the um, the marijuana aspect of that at all. But I don't think young people, but especially young men, are watching pornography in the same way that young people 20 or 30 years ago did. And I think this is a situation all over the Western world. Out of the UK, a fifth of teenagers watch pornography frequently, and according to this U.K. study, some are addicted to pornography. Now, this is people ages 14 to 18. Now, I remember being a 14-year-old to 18-year-old, and I would just live for a rated-R movie in which maybe you could get a glimpse of a nipple, right? That was, oh, forget about it. It was scintillating. I was not watching pornography frequently, certainly not frequently enough to be be addicted to it. So I think we're talking about a lot of good things here. I mean, we're talking about a lot of bad things, but I think the discussion and the points people are raising are uh, are healthy ones. I, I'm not sure. Look, we have covered the decline in um, testosterone, which I believe is at least in part due to environmental concerns. Uh, people, the plastic that we're consuming, the food that we're eating, the air that we're breathing, all sorts of things, the water we're drinking. But I think it's I think it's primarily a question of social alienation, where the interaction that people have with one another has become increasingly electronic rather than in real life. That's my view. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Hey, you know who's coming up in the uh, last hour of the program? Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade made quite a bit of news last week on this program with his very candid discussion of Tucker Carlson. And so much so that there were multiple articles about this that a lot of people wrote about. So much so that... They had to, the the podcast people emailed me and said, whoa, what did you do last Thursday? Because that episode, podcast-wise, exploded. And look, I wish I could take the credit. The credit belongs only to Brian Kilmeade for, uh, I thought when I brought up the whole Tucker Carlson thing at Fox News Channel, I thought he was going to say, "Uh, you know, Tucker's a friend of mine, but I really can't talk about it. That's what I thought he was going to say. Lo and behold, 
he was incredibly candid about the future of Fox News, the present of Fox News, and then unloaded both barrels on Steve Bannon for what it's worth. So I don't know what we can do today to get Brian to uh, top that, but chances are he's going to be a little bit more guarded today, I think, because he doesn't want to fall for any of those Murano clickbait tricks. So we'll see. We'll see. That was the most interesting interview I think I've ever had with him last week. So hopefully today we can exceed that. We'll see. All right. Uh, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. We are on Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. It is me. I am now unverified, unfortunately, because I refuse to fork over a monthly fee to Elon Musk. And now, essentially, verification has become totally meaningless. But it is me, at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. I'm too sexy for my love. Too sexy for my love. Love's going to leave. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Since uh, you're all on social media instead of having sex, at least the young people among you, you might as well follow me on social media. <laughs> Yesterday, my son and I, you know, you know, I eat later in the day because I wake up later in the day. And, you know, I don't like to eat the first thing when I wake up because, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't. I'm not in the habit of it. So my wife was at the dentist yesterday, and um, I was going to take my son outside. My mom was kind enough to come over and watch him for a couple hours while I got some work done. And then she leaves around 5-ish, and I grab an apple. Now, my son is so funny because he will uh, – I'll cut an apple for him, or his mother will cut an apple for him in slices, right, and or in wedges. And if one of us has an apple – he will take our apple so that he can eat it the way that we eat it. And he's pretty good. He just bites right into that apple. So I grab an apple as we're about to walk outside to play outside with the neighbors and just walk around a little bit, let him burn off some energy and that kind of thing. And this little stinker, my 17-month-old son, takes my apple and refuses to give it back to me before we ran, before we go outside. So I recorded him on my new mobile phone uh, stealing my apple and saying very, very audibly the word apple. Uh, and I, I put it all on my Instagram at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. You can see me trying to first coax this uh, apple out of my son's hand and then just, you know, try to take it by force. But he's a lot more agile, and he's smaller, so he's able to better hide. And he did not want to give me this apple back. You'll see it. I posted the whole video on my Instagram, at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O 
Vision, this is The Other Side of Midnight, talking about young people who no longer want to have sex. Mike is in Woodside. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. Uh, are we going to now say that there's no sex in the city? I mean, you know, that, that, that could possibly be it. But, you know, I live uh, in an area where if you go from where I am at 61st and Roosevelt, go all the way to, uh, let's say, Junction Boulevard, right along Roosevelt Avenue, there's a lot of people having a lot of things. And I think that's also a partly a reason because they decriminalize or at least they're not doing what they used to do with uh, vice squads. Uh, there's a lot of paid sex going on uh, in, in our city, at least, that, that I can see. And I'm a blind guy, and I can see that, you know. I walk down the road, and, uh, you know, people are saying, uh, you, you want to have happy ending? You want to do this? You want to do that? There's a lot of stuff going on, especially at night when you're walking around the city. Also, Frank, it's your fault. Late-night radio, late-night entertainment, you, you guys provide such compelling material that you distract us from our function. Well, you're right. I have done my part. I have done my part. I have four sons. <laughs> well, there you go. You're, you've you've done your bid to uh, reproduce the po- uh, and, and the add to the population. Thank you, Mike. You know, I am not saying no one's having sex. What I am saying is that the number of young people having sex is at an all time low. But to Mike's point, you know, that's another thing I didn't mention: the ubiquity of entertainment options. You know, forty, fifty years ago, would you have three channels to watch? Now. You could and a radio. Now you could basically think, "Gee, I'd like to watch a documentary about people who think we're living in the Matrix." And then you just speak into your remote control, and it pops up in five seconds. You don't have to wait to find something good on. You don't have to uh, channel surf. Um, so there are a lot of entertainment options. Last night. For instance, my wife and I watched the most recent episode of Ted Lasso, which, you know, it was very interesting because it dealt with romantic relationships, the demise of romantic relationships, the um, newness of certain romantic relationships and how the different people in them view one another and how they refer to the people they're in their relationships with. And the uh, whole idea of sexuality and whether sexuality is something to be embarrassed about. So it is interesting. So uh, that was the most recent episode. It was quite good. Not as good as the previous week and certainly not as good as the episode they did in Amsterdam, which has got to be one of the greatest episodes of any TV show ever. But uh, that was that was yesterday. I'll tell you what I'm excited about next week. You want to talk about entertainment options. The Jeopardy Masters Tournament. That is going to be phenomenal. The greatest Jeopardy players of all time, plus Ken Jennings as the host, um, are going to meet. That's going to be one for the books. All right. um, Military Industrial Complex and a whole lot more. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
I'm sure you've seen all the president's men, right? What, what is the famous line from Deep Throat in that film? And when I talk about Deep Throat, we're talking about the film All the President's Men has nothing to do with our prior discussion about pornography or sex or anything like that. So get your head right out of the gutter. But what does he say? He says, follow the money. And it's interesting how often that phrase applies. You want to know why governments make certain decisions. You want to know why the media covers certain stories. You want to know why certain people are stars. You want to know why pickleball has exploded. So often the answer is follow the money. You want to know why New York State's become the first state in the country to ban new gas stoves? I suspect the answer there is follow the money. But so many of the issues related to American policy, especially American foreign policy, involve not just following the money, but following the people and the money. What do I mean by that? Well, all will be revealed to you in short order. But first, I want you to remember the words of an anti-American, anti-military, communist peacenik anarchist by the name of General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Of course, he was none of those things. He's one of the most patriotic people that's ever lived, one of the bravest soldiers that ever lived, one of the most brilliant military strategists that ever lived. And under his leadership in the 1950s, uh, in spite of having a divided government, he presided over one of the largest, particularly in the first term, one of the largest period uh, periods of economic of peace and prosperity that the United States has ever seen. Eisenhower, in his farewell address to the nation in 1961, very famously said the following. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. I want you to think about those words. I'm going to replay them in a little while. Those words were originally written as military-industrial-congressional complex. He was persuaded to take the congressional out of there because he felt that was going to be – he was told that that was going to be too insulting to members of Congress that uh, he may need and that the incoming president, President Kennedy, may need. And unfortunately, I think if you look at where we've gone over the course of the last six decades, Ike's warning have come true, has come true in spades. And there is, to me, this is the biggest story on the planet. The fact that the military-industrial complex or the military-industrial congressional complex has a stranglehold over our policymaking. What do we mean by that? Well, a new report compiled by Senator Elizabeth Warren. And now let me stop you. Because let me tell you what I don't want to hear in the course of this discussion. I don't want to hear, uh, I mentioned someone's name. I mentioned Elizabeth Warren. You say, oh, but I don't like Elizabeth Warren. She complained that she was American Indian and she's not. So I don't care what she says. 
I have no patience for it. Save your breath. Save the cost of the toll-free phone call. I have no patience for it. I don't want to hear, well, I don't like Eisenhower. He was bald, and we don't have bald presidents anymore, and he didn't even wear an American flag lapel pin. How patriotic could he have been? <laughs> Save your breath. Get off my phone. What I want to hear is a response to the facts that I am about to bring you. And I want you to connect the dots with where all these facts go. Four areas that we're going to look at. Nearly 700 former top federal civilian officials, generals and admirals, now work for major defense contractors. And the lion's share of them are, you guessed it, I left my bill, my bell, bing, ding, ding, ding. My, um, the lion's share of them are lobbyists, according to a new Senate report obtained by uh, Roll Call, Congressional Quarterly Roll Call. The report, compiled by Elizabeth Warren, is titled Pentagon Alchemy, How Defense Officials Pass Through the Revolving Door and Pedal Brass for Gold. Very clever title, but it also happens to be true. It's going to be made, it was just made public uh, yesterday as Elizabeth Warren chairs an armed services subcommittee on personnel hearing on the movement of senior decision makers between the top echelons of the U.S. government and the executive suites of the largest defense contractors. You know, I have had some really uh, decorated military servicemen on this program, people like Colonel Daniel Davis, people like Colonel Douglas McGregor. And I ask all of them, because they all make perfect sense, I ask all of them, you can add 2 plus 2, and you clearly have come to the conclusion that it's 4. Why are, why are you in the minority? Why do I go on uh, a TV, or why do I turn on television, and I see all of your former colleagues, so many colonels, so many generals, so many majors, all saying the exact opposite of what you're saying? And every time I ask that question, they all say... It's because, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, they're getting paid. And boy, oh boy, are they getting paid. The defense industry is hiring former top government officials precisely because of their ability to influence Pentagon budgets. This practice, uh, in, this is what the report says, this practice is widespread in the defense industry, giving at minimum the appearance of corruption and favoritism and potentially increasing the chances that the Department of Defense spending results in ineffective weapons and programs, bad deals, and a waste of taxpayer money. Elizabeth Warren found 672 cases last year alone of former government officials and military officers, members of Congress and senior legislative staff working for top 20 American defense contractors. Some of the ex-officials have become board members or senior executives, but almost all, fully 91%, have taken jobs as registered lobbyists for the defense contractors, either working in-house or hired by the companies. The report indicates that the universe of ex-officials peddling influence for defense contractors might be larger than that 672 number. That's because many former government employees are not registered lobbyists but still perform advocacy work for defense corporations using titles such as consultants. So basically, if there's a rule 
that you can't be a lobbyist. Well, the, the defense contractor hires you. They say, oh, you're just a consultant, and you do ostensibly lobbying work. Nearly half the contractor executives worked for the top five Pentagon defense contractors, those that build major weapons, military aircraft, warships, ground vehicles, rockets, and satellites. Examples cited in the report include retired Admiral John Richardson, a former chief of naval operations on the Boeing Company Board of Directors, former Deputy Secretary of Defense Robert O. Work, a member of Raytheon's board, former Defense Secretary General Mad Dog Mattis, a member of the General Dynamics Corporation's board, Admiral Pete Giambastiani, a former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who headed the military council that sets weapons requirements. He's now a top lobbyist for General Electric. The report does not name many other former top officials, but... um, For instance, former House Armed Services Chairman Howard McKeon, who's not named in this report, has his own lobbying group and is a registered lobbyist for Lockheed Martin. The defense contractors employing former governmental officials also include drug companies like Pfizer, Moderna, Regeneron. Besides U.S. defense companies, and this is where it gets really scary, Besides U.S. defense companies hiring government officials as representatives and advocates, foreign governments are also hiring them. Some of these governments' human rights records are, to put it mildly, pretty questionable. Or their policies overtly clash with what America's policies are supposed to be, as the Washington Post has reported. On Tuesday of last week, the Washington Post disclosed that Army General Keith Alexander a former National Security Agency director, has, since his retirement, reaped $2 million in consulting contracts from Saudi Arabia and Japan. Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat, and uh, Chuck Grassley, a Republican, wrote a letter to the current Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, on Monday, asking for a list of names of former military officers and Defense Department officials who are working for or have applied to work for foreign governments. This phenomenon of former government officials who now work for defense contractors is only growing. This did not happen in George Washington's day. This did not happen in Ulysses S. Grant's day. And it was just beginning to happen in Eisenhower's day. And Ike saw it. And that's why he warned the public about it. We ignored his warnings. Um, can you imagine that? Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, leaves the wins the Civil War and then goes to work for an armament manufacturing firm. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. Now that's all that happens. The 672 people cited in this Warren report is slightly higher than the 645 found by the Project on Government Oversight from a few years ago, which used comparable methodology. But the 672 cases is considerably more than the 291 cases that group found in a similar review 20 years ago. So it's getting worse. And part of the problem with this is you might think, okay, these guys serve the country. Why shouldn't they go out and try and make as much money as they can by persuading us that we should go to war with every country on the planet and um, spend a lot of taxpayer dollars to do it? Well, part of the problem is divided loyalties. Some national security experts are saying that it's not only natural – 
but also beneficial for America if people with defense-related skills can work for defense contractors or the government. But what Elizabeth Warren is saying and what others are concerned about is the possibility of a government official occasionally tilting a contract or a policy to favor a certain a future employer. In 2004, for instance, Darlene Druyan, a former top Air Force acquisition official who later went to work for Boeing, was sentenced to jail for corruption. While she worked at the Air Force and before going to Boeing, Druyan had forced the Air Force to pay more than necessary for Boeing mid-air refueling tankers and provided Boeing with proprietary information about a rival's bid on the program. You see what's happening here? They know there's a golden parachute waiting for them, these military folks. So they are paving the way, in some cases, while they're in the military. Uh, Senator Warren also worries that a government a government official who works for a defense contractor may provide the company with sway over federal policy and acquisition decisions. That's more a product of that ex-official's connections than the merits of the company's products or services. So uh, I am thrilled that she is making an issue with this, and I hope that everybody stands up and pays attention because... This is only one quarter of the problem. Well, maybe it's a third, depending on how you count. Another part of this is whenever you listen to radio or watch television and these people are citing some sort of national security threat or trying to convince you that you need to go to war with Russia or that you need to go to war with China or you need to go to war with Iraq or you need to go to war with Syria, whatever the country du jour is that they're trying to get you to go to war with and buy these military munitions from these companies whose stock price has been skyrocketing while the government deficit balloons, part of the problem is... So many of the reports, so many of the analyses that suggest a more militaristic footprint are produced by think tanks. These think tanks produce all sorts of material for policymakers, for the media, for op-eds, to give quotes and all that kind of a thing. And now we are seeing that For six of the major warmongering think tanks that have been itching for a fight with insert country here, Russia, China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they are all being paid for and contributed to heavily by these same military defense contractors. So the defense contractors buy off our former officials military officials and congressional officials, as lobbyists. That's only part of what they do. Then they buy off the think tanks. The think tanks produce reports to give a little bit of credibility to what those same uh, pundits are saying on uh, cable news and so forth. Center for Strategic and International Studies. They have gotten half a million dollars from Northrop Grumman, between two hundred and and five hundred thousand dollars from General Atomics, between a hundred and two hundred thousand from Boeing, and the list goes on and on and on. Center for New American Security, another one, has gotten five hundred thousand dollars plus from Northrop Grumman, between a quarter million and five hundred thousand from Lockheed Martin. I'm just going to name some of them. Not all of them. The Hudson Institute has gotten $100,000 plus from General Atomics and from Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Uh, 
The Atlantic Council has gotten uh, between $250,000 and $500,000 from Airbus, Neil Blue, and SAAB, Saab, which provides defense equipment. Uh, between $100,000 and $250,000 from Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. The International Institute for Strategic Studies, another one of these companies, has gotten more than 100,000 pounds from Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Boeing, Airbus, each, each, Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, They've gotten similar fees from Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and some Australian defense, aerospace and defense corporations. So the military defense industrial complex They've not just bought out the retired generals and colonels that then go on TV and tell you how desperate we need to, desperately we need to go to war, but they've bought off the think tanks. And the think tanks are producing reports and quotes and articles and punditry that make the American people think we need to go to war. The, believe it or not, that's only part of the problem. You ask yourself, why is the U.S. military ceding ground to China? And that has to do with what Matt Stoller of the big newsletter, B.I.G., refers to as the military-industrial stock buyback complex. This new Department of Defense report shows big defense contractors are middlemen whose main purpose is stock buybacks and dividends. So you have a situation where the many of the same defense contractors that I just mentioned, they're in the business of delivering a dividend for their shareholders. And that's what it, it is all about. Think back to 1939, uh, the eve of Germany's invasion of Poland. America was completely unprepared for a conflict that everyone thought would come. And most strategists knew the country that could produce more with its industrial base would probably win. And yet even so, American business was totally oblivious. 85% of U.S. factory machinery dated from the 20s or earlier, or some predated even the Civil War. And And the deeper you looked, the worse the situation seemed. The next war would be fought at the cutting edge of technology, which is to say with airplanes. And an Air Force required the technological marvel of aluminum, which you could only get from the longest-lasting industrial monopoly in U.S. history, the Aluminum Company of America, Alcoa. And aluminum was light and strong and immensely energy-intensive to create. And the Alcoa organization produced 100% of it at that time. After America joined the fight, the shortage got worse. Churchill said of the Royal Air Force at that time that never in history did so many owe so much to so few. Um, Well, that's what journalist I.F. Stone said. It might be said of us that never did a people do so little with so much. Politicians were furious at Alcoa, as were military leaders. FDR demanded 50,000 airplanes a year, and the U.S. delivered that and more. But to do so, the national security apparatus, which has always lurked in the background of these monopoly power questions, had to help break Alcoa's power through a mammoth antitrust suit, as well as industrial strategy in the form of subsidies to rivals. Today, we are seeing something similar, believe it or not. Not a world war, fortunately, but a collapsing defense industrial base that limits America's ability 
to supply its military. And increasingly, American leaders are angry, not at Alcoa this time, but at the defense contractors who hold market power over what the military buys, from javelins to ordinary ammunition to ship repair to ball bearings. The U.S. military just can't get what it needs. Admiral Darrell Kodal said, I am not forgiving of the fact that you're not delivering the ordinance we need. That's what he said at Surface Navy Association Conference earlier this year. All this stuff about COVID this, parts supply chain that, I just don't really care. We've all got tough jobs. He's right. And so um, you have a situation where the modern story is relatively simple. In the 90s, post-Cold Warrior, the White House sought to cut defense spending. Clinton's administration arranged a deal with defense contractors. They would tolerate lower revenues or stagnant revenue if they got higher margins. And so at a dinner known as the Last Supper, not joking, the Last Supper held at, in the Pentagon, the Clinton Defense Department encouraged a merger wave. And throughout the 90s, the Department of Defense even paid the merger costs of its defense-based firms. And the number of major prime contractors dropped from dozens to five. And that's where we are now. We have five. So Congress, under reinventing government, passed laws to eliminate contracting rules that blocked price gouging of the Treasury. All of this monopolization was done in a moment when just-in-time manufacturing, where suppliers kept no inventory on hand, was applied to everything, even military stockpiles. So this was totally insane. Who thinks that having no resilience is a good strategy for wars? And yet the U.S. felt so confident in its post-Cold War geopolitical position that the Clinton administration even helped China build its missile program. Think about that. These missiles are aimed at the United States with U.S. technology, all to do a favor for the McDonnell Douglas Corporation. The military defense base continued to fall apart for decades throughout the Bush presidency, throughout the Obama presidency, and throughout the Trump administration. And I'm not saying the military fell apart. I'm saying the military defense base. That's the bad news. The good news is that some of our leaders have finally started to wake up to this strategic problem. Somewhere between 2019 and 2022, military thinkers began to understand that we're all in trouble. The realization that China has a military that could potentially defeat the U.S. prompted significant concern. China's ability to build things is a big reason why. In purchasing power parity, China spends about $1 to our $20 to get to the same capability. That's according to Major General Cameron Holt from the Air Force Acquisition Technology and Logistics Office. Then in 2020, factories in Mexico that make defense-based materials as part of the just-in-time model of supply chain management closed down against the Pentagon's wishes. Last year, Ukraine war, which depleted U.S. military stockpiles, accelerated a conversation over geopolitics with leaders on the right, like Elbridge Colby, forcing a conversation over trade-offs between China, Russia, and the Middle East. On the left, some Democrat anti-monopoly people like Ro Khanna, John Jaramundi, and yes, Elizabeth Warren, saw the problem as well. Warren tweeted at the time. This is just in February, actually. In the 90s, America had 51 major contractors bidding for defense work. Today, there are only five massive companies remaining. Defense contracting should be reworked 
to break up the massive contracts awarded to the big guys and create opportunities for firms of all sizes. So, and that's where we are in terms of Pentagon defense finance contracting. This is the, this report that the Department of Defense put out two weeks ago was the first wholesale reexamination of the effect that this contract financing and profit policies have had on the defense industry since 1985. Most DOD reports are pretty meek. This one attempted wholesale change in the framing of the relationship between these contractors, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics, and the Pentagon. And after reading it, yet really do think that someone in the bureaucracy is very angry at the big five. So we have in some cases, so um, these big five, these defense contractors, they're acting like middlemen in other industries. These big guys, they don't really produce, they extract. The actual work, 60 to 70% of it is performed by subcontractors, and these firms have very few rights and get paid when the big guys feel like it. The executives at Raytheon or Lockheed Martin, in other words, act a lot more like financial engineers than actual engineers. And this is all charted in Matt Stoller's big newsletter. So uh, I'm not going to go through all the numbers here, but understand we are seeing the worst of all worlds. These big five companies are acting like middlemen so they can deliver big returns to their shareholders. We, they then, with some of this money, are buying off think tanks, buying off federal officials, buying off generals and colonels, and then lobbying for a more militaristic war stance. And that is precisely why, even though... The economy is in a very uncertain place. President Biden has prepared the largest Pentagon budget in history. Um, The United States spends more on defense than the next 10 countries combined. Think about that. And yet, we're just going. We're just keep going. Keep going. This cycle never ends, and nobody questions it. And it's one of the reasons there's not a lot of, um, you know, I don't like to drive two hours on my one day off both ways, but this is one of the reasons why I'm heading up to Kingston, New York, to be with Judge Napolitano and Gerald Salente and others for this uh, peace rally on May 27th. And uh, it's going to be, if you want to come, it's in Kingston, New York, is information occupypeace.com starts at 2 p.m. This is precisely the problem. We're not we shouldn't be against war because it's bad. We should always be for defense of this country, but what's gone on here is a total boondoggle. It is precisely what Ike warned about. And you are seeing a few people getting really rich while making a bunch of other people semi-rich, and they sell this gobbledygook to the American people, and very few people are benefiting. Very few people. You ask yourself, how are you benefiting 
if we end up going to war with China over Taiwan? How are you benefiting if we end up going to war with Russia over um, over Ukraine? How are you benefiting if we go to war with blank over any country that didn't attack us? And the answer is, I don't think you are. But these pundits provided by the think tanks will make you think you are. So go back to that all the president's men line and follow the money. If you're not going to follow the money, at least listen to Ike. 800-848-9222. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Snowflake dressed in a snow white gown. Tap, tap, tapping at your window pane to tell you she's in town. Here comes Susie Snowflake, soon you will hear her say, Come out, everyone, and play with me. I haven't long to stay. If you want to make a snowman, I'll help you make one, one, two, three. The great Rosemary if Clooney. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, uh, join the Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano. So I, I came across this article the, uh, just a day or two ago, written in January, but for some reason I only got it yesterday. It was on Medium. Medium's basically Twitter for essays. I think I'm on Medium. But um, the headline really really grabbed me. The headline said, the 15 signs you're more attractive than you think. And I said, oh boy, all right. I bet you I'm responsible for uh, some of these. I bet you I meet some of these. So sure enough, I uh, eagerly go through all these. I said, okay, no, 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 one, no, two, no, no, no. Uh, three, maybe, okay. Four, no. Five, no. And then I realize I don't meet any of these 15 criteria. <laughs> so if uh, if you're curious what the supposed signs are, and this is written by the medium user A-E-S-S-P-I. I don't know what his or her qualifications are. But one, it's that people smile when they see me. Nobody's smiling when they see me. Two is strangers stare at you. Strangers aren't staring at me unless I'm wearing one of my umbrella hats at the Jersey Shore. Three, and this is the one that I think I meet, is people seem to enjoy talking to you, uh, which I do think they do. Four, I didn't even know this was a thing. People raise their eyebrows when they see you. Nobody in my life has ever raised their (laughs) eyebrows when they've seen me. Five is people often do a double take. No one's done ever a double take. 
People make, and this is another weird one, people make what they call duck lips. Another subconscious action that happens when we see someone attractive is making duck lips. No, not the popularized duck face. A one-second reaction that may happen several times in a conversation. And as strange as this sounds, it is a subconscious action linked to the desire to kiss the person. Nobody in my life has ever made duck face, uh, duck lips to me, ever. Seven, people may act differently around you. I wish people would act differently. People are acting the same when I'm around. Eight, others go out of their way to help you. Well, I'm close to that. Uh, I have others go out of their way to ask me to help them, which I'm not sure is the same thing. Number nine, you rarely get compliments on your looks. Okay, well, that's one. Those, that's, that's two. I'm, I'm two out of 15 so far. Ten, when you do get a compliment, it feels insincere. Well, I, I don't know about that one either. Uh, Eleven, people are surprised by your insecurities. No, no one's surprised. Twelve, others tend to have strong feelings about you. Thirteen, you've had some multiple occasions where someone obsessed over you. Well, that I have had, but um, I don't know about multiple. One, one and a half. Fourteen, relationships seem to come easy to you. Um, I don't know about that one either. And fifteen, you get lots and lots of direct messages. Well, that's true, although most of the direct messages that I get tend to be from listeners and involve varying conspiracy theories. So I was all excited to be surprised at how good looking I was. And then I read that article and I realized, okay, I'm not near. I'm just as good looking or not good looking as I think I am. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Lenny in the Boogie Down Bronx. Lenny, thank you for patiently holding. Lenny! All right, Lenny was not so patient. Let me uh, let me go to John in Freehold, New Jersey. Hello, to, uh, John. Hey, Frank. Um, uh, when you called, so uh, the caller that called before that was saying that the white race would be gone by in eight hundred years. Um, just to back up some of his data, the Pew. I t- actually texted you a link. The Pew Research Center. Um, they came out with an article, and they said that uh, out of, as of 2010, 49.5% of children under the age of one were non-white. Well, and they claimed that by 2050, white people will be the minority. Yeah, well, I talked about 47%. that. I talked about that at the time that that survey came out. I guess where I differed from the caller is he was suggesting that um, darker races, as he called it, have a more voracious sexual appetite than whites do. And I haven't seen that borne out in in the data. I think a big part of... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, but they said that... um, uh, you ever notice when people say they're people sorry for interrupting, have, they just keep uh, interrupting? And Hispanics and uh, black people have a 2.4 fertility rate as opposed to um, white people and Asians who have a 1.8 fertility rate. Well, is that true across age groups as well? Like, for instance, do uh, does a young black person, a millennial black person or Hispanic person, are they having more sex than a millennial white person? 
I, that's what I'm looking for, sort of an apples-to-apples comparison. Yeah, they didn't mention the age group in the article, but I sent it to you. I texted it to you. If yeah, you no, again, I've seen this before. Thank you, John. Um, I, I am not, you know, I don't think that's a, a bad subject to discuss at all. The fact that white white people will no longer be the majority in a few short decades. But um, I just, I don't know that that is a corollary to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the decline in sex among young people. Because the survey that I saw regarding sex among young people, it didn't necessarily silo the young people into different races or different ethnicities. I'm talking about an age thing. I think the other caller was talking about more of a, a race thing. Now, I, I do think that's a demographic interesting issue, right? White people are slowly but surely going extinct, okay? Do you know a lot of other races that would be sitting there um, clapping their hands like seals saying, oh, good, yeah, I can't wait till we're, we're, we're the minority? Uh, probably not. But I think it's a different issue than the one that we were talking about, personally. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Rob is in New Jersey. Hello, Rob. Rob! Jerry is in the Garden State. Hello, Jerry. Hi, Frank. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. All right, that's good. Uh, Okay, so this military-industrial complex thing that you were speaking about. So I did all my schooling, primary schooling, in the 60s and finished in the 1970s, to give you an idea of my age. And uh, everything you're talking about, believe it or not, because we had World War II veteran teachers from the Depression era, and because there was like SALT I and SALT II, and Mm -hmm. we were in the middle of a real Cold War during the 60s and 70s, and because of Watergate and because of Vietnam, where 100 people were dying a week, 5,200 roughly every year. So with all this going on and not a lot of distractions because it was pretty much in the news in your face every night, we got taught pretty well about and a lot of the new Eisenhower statement, the statement you made. So I heard this stuff in seventh grade and eighth grade. I heard it in 10th and 11th grade in history class, political science. And these kind of discussions would break out in the classroom, exactly the kind of things you're talking about. And I'm talking about like from A to Z, what you were mentioning and nothing's changed. That's 50 years ago. Well, I think, and thanks for the call, Jerry. I appreciate your, your perspective on that. I think the thing that's changed is it's gotten significantly worse. Every budget from that, it doesn't matter whether it's a Republican proposing it or a Democrat, every budget for the Pentagon and the department of defense is the, is a new record for the largest defense budget ever, it seems. And these people are using the money that the federal, that the taxpayers are giving them and hiring former generals, former colonels, former congressmen, former federal officials as lobbyists to get more money. And then they're giving a big chunk of that money to think tanks that put out reports, for the most part, advocating for greater militarism. And this is not good for anybody. Not good for anybody. By the way, a new study led by the you remember you remember the movie E.T., right, uh, which we talked about the other day, last two days with Steven Spielberg. I brought Tony Lobianco brought it up and then I spoke about it the day before. 
you know, the Steven Spielberg movie from 40 years ago where Spielberg says he regrets editing out those guns. And one of the most famous lines, E.T., the extraterrestrial, who was who was friendly, but one of the most famous lines that E.T. has in that picture is E.T. phone home. Got a big desire to uh, have a phone conversation with his people. And a new study led by the University of Manchester suggests that if any E.T.-like civilization or alien civilizations in general are turning their radio telescopes towards Earth, they may be able to not only detect our mobile phone signals, but they could deduce a lot about our planet and even produce crude maps of it without even being here, just using the, the phone data. See, since the 60s, Scientists have been looking for signs of advanced technological civilizations beyond simply our solar system. Because we know nothing about these hypothetical extraterrestrials, these searches have operated on the assumption that the best bet is to listen for, thank you very much, powerful radio signals beamed directly at the Earth in the narrow radio bands associated with hydrogen. Isn't that interesting? So in 1978, another approach emerged as researchers realized that Earth was inadvertently beaming radio waves into space in the form of military radar, television broadcast signals, radio signals like the one, the station that I'm on right now, other powerful transmissions. In other words, these what they call techno signatures not only indicate how we could detect other civilizations, but how they could detect us. However, things have changed in the 45 years since then. Today, television signals are fading as audiences abandon broadcast television for cable and Internet streaming services. But the team from Manchester and the University of Mauritius have found a new radio source for aliens to zero in on in the form of mobile phone transmissions. See, 1973, mobile phones were a technological curiosity. Who among you had a mobile phone in 1973? I'm betting very few of you. 50 years later, there are an estimated 7.6 billion, with a B, mobile phones and 10.9 billion mobile connections. Since the total population of Earth is only 7.9 billion, that's a lot of radio signals. According to the Manchester team, these phones and the towers that service them aren't very powerful individually. But if you combine them, they add up to a very strong signal. To determine how powerful the signal is and whether it could be detected by any interstellar eavesdroppers, the team at Manchester developed a computer model based on publicly available information about mobile phone usage and by dividing the Earth into different regions representing the distribution of phones and towers. And here's what's interesting. The team then chose three stars within 10 light years of Earth, which are located in the southern sky, the equator, and the northern sky. They also assume that orbiting these stars is a radio telescope equivalent to the Um, Green Bank Radio Telescope in West Virginia. Big shout out to all our West Virginia listeners. What they found was this, that the global mobile phone network leaks a peak power of about four gigawatts into space, 
with the mobile phones leaking about an order of magnitude less. Their calculations indicated that a Green Bank-type telescope couldn't detect these signals. However, a more advanced version could do so, and Earth's mobile signal is growing and moving towards more powerful broadband systems, meaning it's becoming easier to detect each year. So one interesting conclusion of the study is this, and I found this absolutely fascinating, and I've never heard this before and never thought of this before, that because Earth's mobile devices are not evenly distributed and they're designed to transmit parallel to the horizon, if mobile signals could be detected, they would allow an observer to make deductions about the Earth, including the distribution of seas and land masses. There are no mobile phones in the ocean, for the most part. Vegetation, even mapping of the surface. Professor Mike Garrett, team leader of this project, I've heard many colleagues suggest that the Earth has become increasingly radio quiet in recent years, a claim that I always contested. Although it's true we have fewer powerful TV and radio transmitters today, the proliferation of mobile communication systems around the world is profound. While each system represents relatively low radio powers, individually the integrated spectrum of billions of these devices is substantial. So current estimates suggest we will have more than 100,000 satellites in low Earth orbit and beyond before the end of the decade. The Earth is already anomalously bright in the radio part of the spectrum. If this trend continues, we could become very easily detectable by any advanced civilization with the right technology. So these mobile phones that we're all clinging to and not having sex, those could tell aliens everything they want to know about this planet. Isn't that fascinating? This is The Other Side of Midnight. Comment as you see fit. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is in the uh, most recent episode of uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I am enjoying immensely, I must say. All right. 800-848-9222. You know, um, so last night I had uh, I had an invitation to go to dinner at a great restaurant in Brooklyn, a great pizza joint that I really enjoy. But it's more than just a pizza joint. It's really terrific. And the invitation came from one of my closest friends, Arthur Idala. And so Arthur said, hey, why don't we come? Why don't you come have dinner? And I didn't respond because, you know, we're on opposite schedules. So I don't have to respond right away. He says, you know who else is coming? Alan Dershowitz. You have dinner with me and Alan Dershowitz. Said, eh. You know, I'm thinking to myself. Eh. And he says, you know who else is coming? Geraldo. And, you know, 
I've had dinner with Geraldo before. The guy is one of the most fascinating dinner companions on the planet because the guy is not only a gifted storyteller, but he has a lifetime worth of experiences. He could tell you stories about, um, you know, uh, being married five times. He could tell you stories about being Kurt Vonnegut's son-in-law. He could tell you stories about, um, you know, about being a war correspondent, getting his nose broken by the Ku Klux Klan, and he tells all those stories at dinner. I'm thinking, oh, okay. And then he says, uh, oh, and the mayor's going to come too. Uh, mayor Eric Adams, mayor of New York. And Frank Setio is a big Brooklyn power broker. And uh, his parents, who I'm very close to, Arthur's parents, were going to be there as well. And I have to tell you, uh, you know, my wife gives me a hard time about going out to too many events anyway. But uh, I told her this cast of characters that was going to be at this dinner. And she said, so just go. If you want to go, go. But honestly, I'm so exhausted from (laughs) being out all the time at things that I always feel an obligation to be at, that there's always so much pressure to be at, that honestly, I am of the view that I don't want to go to anything anymore that I don't have to. So I am a walking contradiction because I go to all these things, which ostensibly makes me social, but going out this often, especially having a little boy home and a nocturnal radio show to prepare for, it's made me not want to go to anything. So, you know, Rush Limbaugh used to have a a fellow that worked for him whose name was, uh, his name was Kit Carson. And basically, Kit Carson's job, and I'm not trying to minimize it, but Kit's job was just to turn, say no to anybody that asked Rush for anything. And then ask Rush if he wanted to say yes to it. Because he could always say yes after he had said no. But it's very difficult to say no once you've said yes. That's what I need. I need just a de facto person to decline all of my invitations. Now, that's a pretty good invitation as far as as invitations go. You know, night free dinner with Geraldo, Arthur, Arthur's parents, the mayor. And I just still couldn't muster the enthusiasm to uh, to be there. So I um, but he was cool. He understood, I think, kind of what I'm going through and uh, that uh, there's, there's a lot of demands of my time so i'm sure it was a fun dinner i'm sure if you listen to any of those guys on the radio in the next couple of days they'll share some stories about it until next hour your influence counts use it this is the other side of midnight with frank morano they're running a strange program y'all now here's frank morano is the other side of midnight i'm frank moreno i believe it was elvis that asked the question are you lonesome tonight it was a good question when elvis asked it it is a good question anytime and uh, it is a question that i have become increasingly curious about meaning wondering if people are lonely because i at times 
hear from callers or read letters from people. And if I can describe one overarching theme in these letters, these emails, these SMS text messages, the calls to the radio program, so often that theme tends to be loneliness. And while I never really had much in the way of data to suggest that there are a lot of lonely people out there, anecdotally, it kind of seemed that way to me. But what does that mean? What does that mean to be lonely and if you feel lonely? I'm trying to get out of as many engagements as I can. I, I'm, I feel the opposite of lonely at times. I, I could use a few more minutes. I had 20 minutes today where I thought I had to be somewhere and I didn't. And I got to, uh, I wasn't, you know, I lied down in my bed like I was sleeping, but I didn't sleep. I just meditated for 20 minutes. That 20 minutes was one of the highlights of my day. Well, now the U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, wants America to see loneliness as one of our top health challenges. I have to tell you, I was aware that loneliness was a problem for people, a health problem, both physically and psychologically. But I don't know that I was fully aware of how negative loneliness is for your health. What do you think the most dangerous thing that you can do to your health is? Well, I would have said it was smoking. And maybe shortly behind that, it was overeating, maybe, you know, drugs obviously is bad depending on the drug. Drinking, obviously not good for you. And according to the statement that Murthy made this week, studies have estimated that the impact of social isolation on mortality is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. That's according to an advisory that Murthy issued. Think about that. If you're a sociable person, you have as good a chance as of living long smoking 15 cigarettes a day as you would as if you're lonely. Loneliness can... I, I was always of the opinion that loneliness just made people sad. Maybe it made them depressed and with everything that comes with it. But loneliness can increase the risk of heart disease, dementia, stroke, and premature death. And it's also, and I had never considered this, but it makes sense, it's also expensive. With social isolation among older adults accounting for $6.7 billion with a B. Ah, meant to get the bell at the top of the hour. Sorry about that. $6.7 billion in excess Medicare spending annually. That's largely due to an increased hospital and nursing facility spending. In the last half century, We've seen the pace of change, meaning loneliness, has dramatically increased. That's not me saying so. That's the Surgeon General. We communicate differently with people in part because of technology. We've seen more of a shift to online interaction in place of in-person interaction. We change jobs more often. We move more often. These are not my words. These are the words of the Surgeon General, Vivek Murphy. Murphy. That has a profound Impact on our relationships with one another. 
So the effect on young people, and this goes hand in hand to something we've talked about before, is especially profound. In the last two decades, there's been about a 50% decline in the amount of FaceTime young people have with other people. Murphy shared his little antidote to loneliness. He said, quote, I created sacred spaces in my life where I'm spending time with people and not with technology. That is at dinner time with my family. It's when I'm getting my kids ready for bed and it's when I'm having dinner with friends. And um, the other thing that he said, and this really struck a chord with me. The second thing I do is I now make it a point to actually pick up my phone when my friends call. And I'm quoting from the Surgeon General here. So often when we're busy or we only have a few minutes, we may silence the call and figure we'll text them later. But I've been finding that even if I just pick up the phone for 10 seconds and say, hey, I can't talk now, but can I call you later? Just hearing their voice and they're hearing my voice makes us both feel so much better than taking that same time to send a text message. I have to tell you that reading those two quotes, and I don't know if that's going to lead to a decrease in loneliness, but reading those two quotes really struck me in such a profound manner because a big part of my waking hours is avoiding phone calls. Yesterday, I had seven missed phone calls. Now, I called back two of these people. I did not get a chance to call back the other five. The day before, uh, let's see, this is a new phone. Uh, Yeah, the day before, I had four missed calls. And the day before that, one, oh, I didn't even know that person called me. One, two, two from the same person, three, four, five. Now, I am at the point where when I hear the phone ringing, I just get, I get anxious. I get anxiety because it just, it's, it's always a burden, honestly. It's somebody that wants me to do something. It's somebody that wants to come on the show or to um, make a time to have coffee or to have lunch uh, or to, all good things, all good things. And I'm lucky that this many people want to reach me. But I've really come to view the fo- these phone calls as, as chores uh, that weigh on me. And after reading these remarks from the Surgeon General, I'm going to make an effort to really pick up the phone now. And it made me feel guilty at how often I avoid uh, talking to people when they call. And now I you will usually text them back uh, and say, kind of, let me call you later or let me call you at 3 p.m., let me call you at 10 p.m., what I'm going to do now, after listening to the what, and again, there's no nothing suggesting that this is a magic bullet, but what I'm going to do now is pick up the phone, um, and make an effort to be more available to folks that want to reach me. So uh, I realize that's uh, you know. Uh, so we'll see. Here was Vivek Murthy on ABC's Good Morning America three. Now I had no idea there were three Good Morning Americas. But sure enough, they are. Here he is talking about America's loneliness epidemic. 
This is a problem that has been building for decades in our country. Uh, COVID certainly worsened it. It poured fuel on the fire. But that fire was burning before. And as the world has moved faster and faster, as things have changed so much, as we now move around a lot, we change jobs a lot, how we communicate with one another has changed and often shifted from in-person to online. A lot of that together has actually taken a toll on our relationships. And now we're realizing that we've got to be intentional about rebuilding those relationships because they have a profound effect both on our mental health and our physical health. So there is a mental cost to this. There's a physical cost to this. Being lonely is the equivalent of smoking a dozen cigarettes a day in terms of mortality. And there's a financial cost to this. So... I would love to know from you, there's a lot of people listening to us right now, and, I, and I've gone over this with a lot of experts in happiness and in other areas, but I'd love to know for you, if someone's listening to us right now and they're lonely, what would you suggest for them? 800-848-9222, and I've solicited suggestions like this before. And when we're talking about boredom, somebody told a friend of mine one time that they were bored and we solicited suggestions, including some very helpful ones. Boredom is different than loneliness. Sometimes they could be one and the same, but it's different. So if someone's lonely, what would you suggest for them? Maybe their significant other has passed away. Maybe their children have moved away. Maybe they don't have a relationship with their family. Maybe they're a little bit older. Whatever the circumstance, wherever someone finds themselves at a station in life where they're lonely, you see the physical, psychological, and financial toll that this is taking on this country. I buy this from the Surgeon General. I do think this loneliness epidemic is a real problem. Um, what do you do? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Alex Barnard informs me that uh, Good Morning America 3 is the show that those two anchors that were cheating on their spouses with one another um, were anchoring. I See, I thought it was Good Morning America 2. So there you have it. Good Morning America 3. That's the, You know, it has been nice not to hear anything about those cheating Good Morning America anchors for a couple of uh, weeks now. You remember, it seemed like every day those two were on the front page of the New York Post. And my attitude with that was the same as my attitude with the Met Gala and anything involving someone that has the title of Prince in Great Britain. And that's, I just couldn't care less. If uh, if they're cheating on their spouse, that's up to them. I don't understand why this is the business of the journalism profession to cover which anchors are sleeping with which other anchors. All right, 800-848-9222. What if someone's lonely? What do you do? What advice do you give? Now, again, some people, before you tell them, go out and take up exercise. Before you tell them, go out and join a bowling league. Some people might be lonely because they're physically unable to get out. They might be physically disabled. They might be, you know, we have quite a few. You hear from them quite often. We have quite a few blind listeners. They're not going to go out and join a softball league in all likelihood. So what if someone has a limitation that keeps them from going out and uh, hanging out at a bar and meeting others? 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up in about 10 minutes. One of the things that I really think can be very stimulating to people is art. 
And in the AC report, by the way, big tip of the hat to our friends at Talk Radio 1400 WOND, my favorite talk station in Atlantic City, who are carrying this show. Thank you. Uh, we are going in the AC report. We're not going to focus on gambling. We're not going to focus on dining, not going to focus on light nightlife. We're going to focus on art because there is some stunning artwork on the streets of Atlantic city in the form of murals and other things. How did it get there? We're going to get into it. And I think it's going to be a great discussion. Mary in Maryland. Um, what do you tell someone if they're lonely? Um, I try to encourage them, and I hope you're doing well tonight, Mr. Thank you. Frank. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, I hope that they have friends and family, people to reach out to, but people lose touch these days. It's not just the millennials that are on their phones all the time, constantly. It's a lot of us. And you turn around, and it's too late to call somebody. And I'm up listening to you because I lost a spouse less than a year ago. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry to, uh, I could hardly even talk about him, you know, just until the last couple of months, but I never expected it, Frank. I never was prepared or never prepared, but it's just that people kind of, when you're not a couple anymore, you're, it's not like, you know, it's like you've lost an arm and a leg. It's very unusual. It's just, you cannot prepare for it, but I work with elderly, and um, I'm approaching that myself. But the thing is that they have to have some connection. We're from our church. Uh, We happen to be Roman Catholic. We like to visit the elderly in nursing homes and things like that. So during COVID, a lot of them were so sick, so scared, so cut off. It really, really caused damage, you know, emotionally, all of these things. But we still, after COVID, it seems like we're all trying to catch up. How is so-and-so? Oh, he passed away. And you're Mm. just like, oh, no, please, no, not another one. But I I relinked up um, with this one church, and they have many, many needs. One of them, um, in the Baltimore, Towson area, a lot of young people are unfortunately, unfortunately losing their lives. So at the church, they have a grief ministry. Mm. Some of my family said, you need this. I said, okay, so I called them. It was not your typical grief, but it was exactly, exactly me and a couple of friends needed, Frank. I'm telling you, it was wonderful. Well, that, that's great. It I'm was, so happy to hear that, Mary, that you yeah. found an outlet with your church and the uh, right. grief ministry uh, at the church. That right. sounds like um, right. a great strategy. Thank you, Mary, and best of luck. And again, I'm sorry about your husband. My Aunt Camille, that reminds me, my Aunt Camille, um, my, her husband, my Uncle Carmine, passed away um, a few years ago. And, you know, she was very lonely, especially during COVID. So she goes to church every day, not just for the spiritual sustenance that she gets from it, but from the social interaction and the people that she sees there. And she's also in a group for uh, a weekly widows meeting. Every Tuesday she meets with other widows, and she's found that really helpful in staving off loneliness. During COVID, when all this was shut down and she couldn't see anybody, even in her own family, she felt that that was torture. She said, you know, after surviving COVID and being essentially locked in the house by myself all day, I really found that I now think solitary confinement is torture. And I totally get where she's coming from. Now that things are opened up, maybe if you have lost a spouse, maybe, maybe one of those church groups is a good situation for you. Or if you're not particularly uh, into going to church, try one of those widows groups. Or my grandmother met her second husband, both of whom happen to be named Frank, 
My grandmother met her second husband at Parents Without Partners, a group for widows and widowers. And a lot of people do do that. 800-848-9222. We have a first-timer. Walt is in New Jersey. Walt, what can you tell us about loneliness? Well, I, I lost my wife about five years ago. Oh, I was sorry. I was, I was lonely. And I was really lonely. And I joined the senior citizens. I go there. And I and what I do, if I go out to eat, I don't go out to eat by myself. I take somebody with me. I don't care who it is. I just take them. Have a good night out. With a nice well, hopefully meal. it's someone you at least know. That you'll take with oh, you. Oh, yes, I know. Okay. My, You're not I, kidnapping I, someone as a dinner companion. No, I'm not kidnapping. But no, I just take them out and have a good time. I know them, you know, for the senior citizens or somebody Somebody tells me, go see somebody. He's lonely and you're lonely. Go. So I do that. I take them out. And I have a good time. Take them home and say good night and thank you. And that's it. That Well, that's so, nice, Walt. Uh, again, I'm sorry about your wife's passing. Most of your da- dining companions that you that you end up taking out, where do you find most of them? Well, I, I go to the senior citizens or I have friends that know people that are lonely, you know, have a problem that I take, I ask them out. Well, I think that's great, Walt, and thank you for the call. And I think what you're hearing from Walt and what you're hearing from Mary is so important, which is they both make an effort to interact with people in Person. In person. I think that is so key. Now, again, I say this as I'm looking for someone to professionally say no to all my social invitations. Trust trust me, I am doing my fair share of in-person socializing. Believe me. So, uh, but the, the one thing, if you're Walt or if you're Mary, the one thing that I don't know that we've sufficiently addressed is what if you have a physical disability? What if you're... Um, an invalid or blind and you can't do a lot of these things that you used to be able to do in terms of going out physically. How do you then stave off loneliness in that instance? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Kurt is on Staten Island. Hello, Kurt. Hello. Hello, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Um, You know, I'm I'm 64 years old, and I live by myself. Not exactly. I have a dog, and my dog really, he helps me deal with my loneliness. You know, and I encourage people who are lonely, who live alone, to get a pet. They really, they really, they really, it really works. You know, that's another good suggestion, and thank you for that, Kurt. And uh, what's your dog's name? It's Smokey. Smokey? What kind of dog is he? Yeah, he's he's a German Shepherd pit bull mix. A pet is so key. Thank you, Kurt. I was house-sitting for my mom about five years ago, and I had a very rough election night. And it was one of those election nights where every – I lost every possible election you can lose. I actually felt ill. I felt physically ill because of the results of the election. All my friends had lost – uh, every candidate I was supporting had lost. Uh, the party that I was the leader of had lost ballot access. And on top of that, I couldn't find my car. I lost my car. And I just felt so totally assaulted, right, by by life. Now, obviously, I had a lot going for me, but I still felt so sad. And I'll tell you, 
when I went home to my mom's house and the I saw my dog who greeted me and um, crawled into bed with me because he could sense that I was sad. And he kind of kind of in solidarity put his head on my my arm. It really did make me feel so much better. And I really do think pets, especially dogs, but even cats, pets have a certain degree of empathy, which can help you stave off a sense of, in my case, just sadness. But in the case of someone like Walt, loneliness. I think that's another very good suggestion. 800-848-9222. We have another first-timer. Matthew in Hawaii. Matthew, what station are you listening to us out there on? Oh, I'm listening over the uh, the gosh darn internet. The gosh darn so, internet. Okay. What do you have to say on the uh, <laughs> subject of uh, loneliness, Matthew? Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I lost my wife, uh, you know, a number of years ago, Sorry. and I'm a young man. I love, you know, at a young age. But I spend my time with animals, you know, out in the ocean. Out, in, I'll tell you what. The more time you spend with animals, they have more compassion for you than you can understand. Matthew, I totally buy that. What kind of animals do you spend time with primarily? All right. I'm going to let you in on a little trick. Uh, when When you're out surfing, if you go down, let all your air out, you go down, and just go down to the seafloor, dolphins will come up to you, and they'll nuzzle up to you. And they'll, you know, because they're mammals. And they're like, hey, what's going on, bro? You know, but they'll come up to you. And there's no greater experience. Uh, well, that uh, I mean, that's great. I mean, I would imagine uh, spending some time with uh, dolphins on a regular basis can be pretty uplifting. Matthew, I'm sorry about your uh, your your wife's passing, but uh, I think animals are an important thing, especially if you are, say, unable to leave the house. And again, I, we live with three cats, but cats you don't have to go out and walk. So for some people that aren't maybe in a position to go out and walk, a cat can be a very Faithful Companion, 800-848-9222. Tim is in Westchester. Hello there, Tim. Hey, Frank. Good morning. morning. My condolences to the previous callers who lost their spouses. I took a different approach after my divorce. I found myself to be very lonely, especially at night when you come home to an empty house. So what I ended up doing was getting a job at night so that I didn't go home at night. And I reversed the process by going home during the morning hours. And I found that really helped me to deal with the loneliness and haven't felt lonely since. Really? So did you did you pick up a second job or this was your sole job? It was working at night instead of during the day? Um, this became an entirely different occupation. But, I, uh, but, but in, place, in place of a regular daytime job or in addition to a regular daytime job? In addition, I've always worked a lot, but I never worked overnight. So I was able to uh, reduce some of the work I do during the day in a different occupation. And I found myself in the, I'm in the medical industry now. I do medical, I'm a medical courier. So I, I drive through the night and I pick up lab work. I pick up kidneys and I deliver the hospitals all over the, the area. And you would think I would be bored just sitting in the car all by myself. But 
you and Dominic Carter keep me entertained the entire night. Well, though, thank you, Tim. I was going to say, I wouldn't think you'd be bored because there's some very compelling radio programming on at night. Tim, thank you. Best of luck to you. I have some friends that need kidneys. I'll give you their number. If you could sne- if a kidney or two falls off the back of a truck, who's to say, right? All right. Who, who would be the wiser? Uh, I'm a little surprised to hear that, I must say. I think that's a very productive thing, and I'm glad it's worked out well for Tim, and it's something for people to keep in mind. When I was working super early mornings, and I was leaving my house at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I found it, especially on Thursday morning and Friday morning, I would find it so depressing driving to work to start my day when I would see people lined up outside of a bar waiting to get in or hanging out after leaving a restaurant or having a bunch of taxis waiting for them after this big raucous party because they were in full-blown party mode and I'm on my way to, to work. And it made me a little sad. So I had sort of the opposite view of um, of working odd hours as Tim did. Now I love it. Now I really do uh, like it. So I guess, you know, I guess part of the recurring theme is whether it's church, like Mary said, whether it's uh, other widows groups, like the other gentleman said, whether it's animals, as we heard from Matthew and others, you got to try different things, right? And I think you need the willingness to try different things And my vow in discussing this and in reading this is I'm going to make an effort to always pick up the phone. Even if I can't talk, that's going to be my vow. And uh, because so often the phone rings and I will slide it over to no and say, I'll call you back later. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I'm going to make an effort to pick up the phone. That's mine. So my hope is that if you're dealing with loneliness – or in the future, if you find yourself dealing with loneliness, you're hearing these statistics that the Surgeon General is citing here. Make an effort to try new things. can be tough. can get you outside your comfort zone a little bit, but try it. Hey, the AC report is next. We're going to talk art, public art, private art, 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 all except Carney. The AC report, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Hair up pretty and meet me tonight. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight, broadcasting nationwide and very, very pleased and honored to be on Talk 1400 WOND in Atlantic City, one of the greatest talk stations in America, because it is time for our weekly look at the most interesting 48 blocks in the universe. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about Atlantic City. We've covered Atlantic City's History. We've covered Atlantic City's political scene, the culinary scene, the nightlife, and of course, the gambling, the gambling, the gambling. One aspect, if I'm being objective, that we may have neglected in covering Atlantic City every week for the last few years might be the Atlantic City art scene. Well, believe it or not, Art might not be the first thing that you think of when it comes to Atlantic City, but the art scene is actually thriving in Atlantic City. It is fast becoming a spot that artists from all over the country are flocking to to do their artistic thing. And there is a terrific organization that is facilitating the merger of artists and places where those artists can showcase that art. The group is the Atlantic City Arts Foundation, and I'm very pleased to be joined this morning by Kate O'Malley, the executive director of the Atlantic City Arts Foundation. Kate, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. So, Kate, people are hearing about the Atlantic City Arts Foundation for the first time. What exactly is it? What do you guys do? Uh, So we are a 501c3 nonprofit focused on public arts engagement in Atlantic City, Our mission is to um, enrich the quality of life for residents of and visitors to Atlantic City through interaction um, with public arts. So we run the city's largest mural arts program with uh, just under 80 murals throughout the city um, done by local, national, and international artists. And we also run um, different types of free arts programming throughout the 48 blocks of Atlantic City throughout the year. Well, I've seen some great murals and in, throughout Atlantic City, not realizing that a lot of this is probably the result of your work. So I think that's uh, that's great. Now, uh, obviously, this is a big deal for artists. Obviously, it's uh, kind of a neat thing for people like me who spend a lot of time in Atlantic City and like to see creative and interesting art projects on um, in the form of murals on different walls. But beyond the artists and beyond people like me who get a kick out of seeing this stuff, why should people care about public art and why should they care about the work that you guys are doing specifically? So public arts, especially for a place like Atlantic City, um, arts a lot of the time are the first sign of true vitalization of an area. Um, You see it time and time again with neighborhoods in other cities that are, you know, run down. They have, you know, low quality housing. Artists move in. They start doing their thing. The area becomes beautiful. People, you know, gain interest and it kind of blossoms from there. Then the coffee shop shows up then the concert venue shows up. Then it becomes a hot place to be. And it's happened time and time again. Um, And so really the arts in Atlantic City is is organically growing this really interesting and, and diverse arts community here. Um, and it's sustaining itself, and people are becoming career artists in Atlantic City. It's becoming um, a real career path for folks here. People are moving here to work in the arts. People are coming here to visit um, and see the arts. And for a lot of folks that are coming in, um, say, from cities with established arts programs like 
New York, like Philadelphia, it's it's almost like that cutting edge, like you're getting the, you know, first scoop, the if you know, you know type of thing. Um, so it's it's really interesting to watch. And people have come from all over and especially for the residents, long term residents who never thought, you know, that something like this would be possible in Atlantic City. That's what's important for us to change the narrative and also to put Atlantic City on the map as a arts and culture destination. You mentioned the 80 murals that are up around Atlantic City, many of which are just breathtaking. But you alluded to sort of the work that the Atlantic City Arts Foundation is doing, making Atlantic City a destination for the arts, plural, and arts and culture. What other types of art is the Atlantic City Arts Foundation interested in culture? cultivating aside from just murals? Sure. So in addition to the mural program, we run three main programs throughout the year. Uh, 48 Blocks AC is our flagship program, which we run every summer, um, which encompasses the mural program, but it also has two other prongs. Um, So we run a painted Adirondack chair and planter box program uh, where artists can beautify um, boardwalk furniture that gets placed on the boardwalk and as well as in our public parks. We also run Um, a citywide arts and culture celebration where we will do throughout the city for its 48 projects, 48 blocks, 48 hours. So it's a weekend festival. And anybody, you don't necessarily have to be a professional artist to apply. Anybody with a creative project can apply. And people have done poetry. They've done theater performances. They've done dance performances, DJs, drum circles, live art, installations, sculpture, anything goes and that's something that you can catch all across the city for that weekend we also do a citywide chalk bombing activity um, every october we do that in partnership with the schools as well as we hire local artists and we'll send groups of people out to different areas of the city with packs of chalk and it's mostly like everybody's an artist for the day and you cover the city in positive messages and artwork it's kind of a really cool opportunity for residents to interact with artists for school children to interact with the arts and and really get a feel of like creating a sense of pride for the city and creating a sense of ownership in uh, creating beauty for that city for the day. Um, And then we also run a program called Arteriors, which we um, take vacant and disused spaces in the city. We'll bring in a group of artists and they will have two weeks to use whatever was left in that space and upcycle it into art installations. Um, So it's a lot of mixed media it's predominantly focused in the visual, but not um, fully, you know, closed off to just visual art. But what we're trying to do is promote all types of arts and, you know, also highlight all the different types of art that exist in Atlantic City. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Kate O'Malley. She is the executive director of the Atlantic City Arts Foundation. You know, Kate, one of the things that I hear in discussing uh, crime in various cities, especially in New York, is this theory called broken windows, where once you start uh, prosecuting small crimes and making clear that quality of life crimes, even if they're relatively minor, are not going to be tolerated, that that has a broader sociological impact that causes people to take a greater um, ownership stake in their community and they're less likely to commit bigger 
bigger crimes. I I really do think that that's true with visual blight and public art. I do think if you walk down a city block and you see something that is run down, kind of dreary looking, kind of disheveled, it creates a very different mentality in the mind of business owners, in the mind of visitors, and especially residents than if you walk down a block that is uh, teeming with artwork and especially brightly colored public murals. Do you share that view? Yeah, absolutely. And especially involving um, those local communities and folks that live in the neighborhood, work in the neighborhood, in the creation of mural, they tend to take a sense of ownership over that. And you'll notice, you know, streets around that mural becoming cleaner. Um, You'll notice a reduction in graffiti and tagging um, around that mural, um, you know, sense an increased sense of pride um, and confidence in uh, your sense of place um, in conjunction with the creation of public art with the community. Uh, So, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. In your view, are you an artist yourself, by the way? Uh, I consider myself a hobbyist. A hobbyist. (laughs) I have an anthropology background, actually. In your view, what is it that makes Atlantic City so unique, so special, and such a wonderful uh, canvas for public art and the arts in general? Why not a neighboring city like uh, Ventnor or Margate or uh, a city in another state? What is it about Atlantic City that makes it such a great fit for the arts? I think Atlantic City and its residents for a long time have, you know, they come from all over the place and not just all over New Jersey, but from different countries, from different walks of life. And everybody kind of culminates together in this place where you can essentially be anything. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. there's a, a saying, you know, it's a place you go to hide in plain sight. It's a place you go to start over. You can do anything. Anything goes in Atlantic City. And I feel like that kind of um, translates into artistic expression. You know what I mean? You can really have the opportunity to create something outside of the box. And instead of maybe it being something that's not received in the correct light or you have to worry about you know catering to a certain taste it's it's um it's valued more um in atlantic city if you create something wild if you create something eye-catching if you create something that's a conversation starter that's maybe um off the cuff or something like that i think that in itself is um what makes atlantic city attractive to so many people is you don't have the kind of um, uniformity that you would see in other towns. Um, I think Atlantic City is such a melting pot of so many different things that it only makes sense that it would be the perfect storm for so many different types of art to blossom as well. There are almost weekly, I get a an email, a text message, a phone call from someone. Sometimes it's someone I know. Sometimes it's a listener that I've never met in person, but feel like I know. And they'll say, hey, I'm going to Atlantic City with my husband, my wife. They love to gamble. I'm just not into it. What can you give me to do uh, that uh, doesn't involve gambling? And in my days, when I lost all my money at the craps table, much more quickly than I would have preferred to do, a lot of times I found myself looking for something to do for a couple of hours while the rest of my friends were uh, still making their money for work for them at the craps table or the blackjack table, whatever. If someone wanted to do, say, an Atlantic City art 
sightseeing tour. What are some of the spots that the Atlantic City Arts Foundation is responsible for that you're proudest of? If someone wanted to do some sightseeing and see some of this artwork, where would you send them first? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, So we actually do have an interactive mural map that is on our website, AtlanticCityArtsFoundation.org. We have um, an interactive map of all of our murals, as well as printable self-guided tours um, of different, like, curated loops. Um, But I would say the most bang for your buck is walk the orange loop. For those of you who don't know Atlantic City, you know, the streets in Atlantic City are the same as those on the Monopoly board. Monopoly was based on the streets in Atlantic City. The three orange properties, um, Tennessee, St. James, and New York Avenue, um, actually have become this kind of like arts and culture mecca on their own that are home to a ton of great restaurants, great bars, independent music venues, and also really, really impressive murals. And you can walk them all within a few blocks Mm. and you can get yourself really unique cocktails. You can see an independent concert um, and you can get some great bites of food as well. And it's all right on the boardwalk. Yeah, no, that is, that's great advice. And, you know, since you mentioned the orange loop, I was in Atlantic City last Friday, and I met uh, some listeners at uh, the Hard Rock, and they they were of the opinion that the Orange Loop and Atlantic City outside of the casinos in general was not a safe place to hang out. Uh, since you guys are so involved in the revitalization of the Orange Loop, and I, I think you actually have an office on Tennessee itself, What's your view? Do you think that the uh, the Orange Loop is a safe place to just walk around and stroll for the average person, the average visitor, or the average resident? I would say for Atlantic City in a whole, you have to take into account that this is a city, um, and every city is going to have a you know fair share of. You have to watch out for yourself. Don't be an idiot. Mm-hmm. But also, conversely, I am a five foot tall woman. I live on the orange loop i live on tennessee avenue and i have never once had a problem my car has never been broken into i've never you know dealt with an uncomfortable encounter um i think as long as you have your street smarts and especially you know bar hopping around here or going you know down the boardwalk ramp to get dinner you're not going to encounter an issue um and again, yeah, our office is on, on New York Avenue, a couple blocks down in the north side. Um, but if you're on the boardwalk and if you're popping in and here in and there, um, as long as you have your wits about you in, in any place in the city and in any city, really, you're fine. One of my favorite pieces of artwork, public art in Atlantic City, is the beautiful mural. And I, and I think you guys are responsible for this next to the Irish pub, which shows basically a woman wearing an American flag cloak and then holding a seashell, which has an image of uh, the beach skyline on it. And in my view, that really encapsulates a lot of the beauty of both America, a woman, and Atlantic City in one beautiful uh, mural. Is, Is that one of yours, by the way? Yeah, so that one is titled Descent is Patriotic by Sarah Painter and Cosby Hayes who actually came to us from Florida uh, to paint that mural. And funnily enough, the woman in the picture, um, in the mural that's wrapped in the American flag with that crown of seashells, was actually based on a picture of the very first crowned Miss America. Oh, wow. Um, She was in that same draped in the American flag with the crown of seashells. So Sarah and Cosby, when they came in, did a lot of research on Atlantic City and the history and the context of the town and where they were. 
Um, so they based that um, image on the very first Miss America and also the title um, based around one of the largest women's marches, which took place actually in protest of Miss America, which took place right on the Atlantic City boardwalk and had hundreds and hundreds of women from all over the country. Um, and she holds in her hand, you know, the Atlantic City boardwalk and the seashell, and she's painted with this somber look underwater as a motif, you know, for Atlantic City's vulnerability against um, storms and coastal flooding as a shore town, but she's holding the shell with um, the boardwalk and steel pier and all of the things we hold dear close to her heart as, um, you know, a prevailing image of hope wow. uh, for the future. And that mural is definitely long-lasting and one of our most famous in the city. Uh, th- that is terrific. I had no idea that it was so steeped in, in history. And now I'm looking at this mural map on your website, and people could check it out at AtlanticCityArtsFoundation.org. And I, I, I honestly can't wait to get back to do my own sort of mural walking tour. It's really, uh, really some great spots on here, and I'm trying to plan out where I can go to eat, drink, and gamble as I'm gazing at a lot of these uh, murals. Kate, we have a lot of people listening around the country, New York City, Baltimore, Memphis, Nashville, Anchorage, Nevada, and a lot of them may be saying, why do I care about what's happening in Atlantic City in terms of art? One of the reasons that I was eager to have you on and eager to tell people about the work of the Atlantic City Arts Foundation is because I really view what you guys have done as being a potential model for other cities that are struggling with public beautification. Have you heard from any other cities that they're emulating your model and supporting public art in this sort of a way? Yeah, actually, uh, not too long ago, I was uh, contacted by Kenneth Leap of Reimagine Runnymede, um, not too far away from Atlantic City, actually not too far away from where I grew up, um, because they were interested in creating a mural program of their own and were asking how we did it. Um, And funnily enough, one of their very first uh, projects was to do a mural on um, the playground of where I went to elementary school, which was a really cool, like, turnaround for me personally. Um, But yeah, it's, it's Atlantic City is every city. You know what I mean? Arts revitalization through the arts is possible for everyone. And I think really with the story of Atlantic City and the story of a lot of places like Atlantic City, a grassroots approach, starting with what you know, the people you know, the people you care in your own community and growing it from there is really what nurtures a lasting program. It served us well. No, I, I can imagine. And again, I'm talking Kate O'Malley. She's the executive director of the Atlantic City Arts Foundation. One of the newer restaurants that I haven't been to in its present location yet, I was at the old location is a place called Cardinal. I was a, It was a great location, and it's taken over for people that are familiar with it, the location of the former Bure. And I understand you've done something uh, on, the, on the walls, the exterior walls, or are doing something at Cardinal. What are you guys doing exactly? Yeah, so we are actually um, super, super proud to be partnering with Cardinal and uh, Create 48, which is another mural company on um, the largest mural project ever to exist in Atlantic City. Um, So we are actually going to be creating a mural, a 5,000-square-foot mural that wraps the entire building, um, as well as murals to cover all of their shipping containers outside, which serve as their outside bar. Um, And that'll be happening in three phases. Um, We opened our application um, two months ago, closed it last month. We received tons of applications from artists all over the world, from Portugal, Canada, um, Tokyo, 
um, as well as across the U.S. and across Europe. Um, it was really, really mind-blowing to see. Um, and so we're actually waiting on sketches from our finalists, wow. um, the final couple of artists, and folks will be able to watch that art being created uh, very, very soon, which is extremely exciting. Uh, we're really, really looking forward to that. If people are listening who are artists themselves, what else do they need to know if they're interested in taking advantage of some of the programs you guys offer or potentially seeing some of their work displayed in the form of a future mural? What's the best place for them to to start? Is it to go to the website? Is it to reach out to you? How should they begin? Yeah, so we actually have an artist database uh, that you can sign up for on our website, AtlanticCityArtsFoundation.org. There's a tab called Join Us. You select Join Us artist um or if you want the direct link it's atlanticcityartsfoundation.org slash apply um and you can fill in your information for our artist database we send out emails every time we have paid opportunities coming up and you can also visit that page to find out what opportunities we currently are accepting applications for currently um until the end of this week we are accepting applications for one of the shipping containers at Cardinal, as well as um, our painted share and planner box. Cool. cool. Hey, and lastly, uh, let me end with what will absolutely be our most controversial question, and I hope it's one that you are bold enough to answer. Uh, gun to your head, you have to pick out of every restaurant in Atlantic City, what is your absolute favorite? Doesn't matter what type of cuisine. Oh, man. You know what? I really think it's Mexico in Chelsea. They have happy hour every single day from 3 to 7. They have fantastic margaritas. They have really, really great, authentic Mexican food, and I absolutely love it there. Mexico in Chelsea. That's an important one to keep in mind as we uh, as we celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Good stuff. Hey, Kate, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Hey, speaking of restaurants, I finally, last weekend in Atlantic City, got to try Cafe 2825. And I have to say, there are some places that are overly hyped. This is not one. I have to say, the restaurant was just as good as I'd heard. And uh, I hope I'm able to get in again. It was phenomenal. All right. uh, Lots more to come. I'll see you on the 48 Blocks. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, uh, a problem which I feel like, unlike the loneliness discussion we had last hour, a problem which I feel like almost everybody listening understands is already a problem, is America's obesity epidemic. Uh, the Just to give you an idea, around the world in 1975, around the whole world, Four percent of adults were considered obese. Four percent. Around 2015, that number soared to 13 percent. And since then, I don't have precise data, but since then, it's gotten worse. It used to be the problem in the world was starving. That's not the case anymore. Now the problem with the world is obesity. And into this situation, there have been a host of anti-obesity drugs and other treatments, which they say you can use safely. Um, We spoke before about the basket of uh, what they call semaglutides, which includes Ozampic, which includes Wegovi, and I think one or two others. And now there is a brand new anti-obesity drug, which they are saying may become the best-selling drug of all time. All time. The anti-obesity drug is called, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, the generic name of it is terzepatide, and it could become the top-selling drug of all time. The treatment, which is trademarked as Munjaro, mimics a hormone which controls hunger. And it's already approved for treating diabetes, but it's now likely to be also approved for treating obesity this year. Trials of this drug are very promising. Trials show that obese patients on the drug lose 16% of their body weight on average in 17 months. Now, that's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. 16% of your body weight? I mean, that is really remarkable. So think about that. If you weigh 300 pounds, which, you know, is pretty heavy, that means you're losing almost 50 pounds. And that's pretty significant. If you weigh 320 pounds, that means you're losing, see, more than 50 pounds. I mean, that is wild. Wild. So, um, in any event, the market for this treatment, because of all these obese people that are out there in the world, is big. One doctor told Semaphore that if a quarter of the 140 million obese Americans, that's how many Americans are there that are obese. Now, I feel like the number of Americans that they claim is obese. I I don't necessarily agree because you look at the criteria for what's obesity and I feel like they consider too many people obese, but I I get what they're saying. There are a lot of obese people. So the um, one doctor pointed out that if a quarter 
of the 140 million obese Americans use the similar $15,000 a year drug, semaglutide, it would cost $500 billion. That is nearly twice the total U.S. spending on prescription drugs. And terzepatide outperforms semaglutide, and its owner, Eli Lilly, has invested hugely in manufacturing. So you've been hearing all about Wegovi and Ozampic and these commercials that are demonstrating all this weight loss and all these celebrities supposedly losing all this weight because of Ozampic and Wegovi. This new drug is more effective, and the manufacturer, Eli Lilly, is apparently going to have a much bigger supply, unlike the Ozampic shortages which people were experiencing, both obesity patients and diabetes patients, last year. What this essentially means is, one, I think that's the key takeaway. Munjaro will be the best-selling drug of all time. I mean, think about that. That's amazing for any drug to get that title. Two, this means that if you have money or your insurance company decides they're going to cover this, that nobody ever needs to be obese again. So instead of 14% or more of the global population being obese, if you can afford this drug to the tune of $15,000 a year, maybe a little less, again, depending on what the insurance situation is, Obesity is over. Now, it seems too good to be true. You know, I'm reminded of that film, uh, 28 Days Later. Did you ever see that film, 28 Days Later? It's a really great film. It's kind of a horror film. It's kind of a science fiction film. But basically, the film begins with some drug manufacturer, similar to this, announcing that they've caused can- that they've cured cancer. And the interviewer asks, so you've cured cancer? She says, yes, yes, we have. And she's happy about it. Lo and behold, that cancer cure turns almost the entire planet into zombies that want to eat other people. So who knows? Maybe this is similarly too good to be true. Maybe these obesity drugs, terzepatide and semaglutide, won't be the cure to obesity as we know it. I'm curious what you think. Are you going to take this? Are you optimistic about this? Are you fearful of this? Where do you come down? Rachel Graham is a user of Manjaro, and she spoke to CBS News about this new weight loss drug. I asked my doctor specifically for Manjaro. The weight loss was slow and steady, two or three pounds a week consistently until I had lost uh, 65 pounds. Wow, 65 pounds. Dr. Scott Isaacs is the medical director of the Atl- of the Atlanta Endocrine Associates Center. This is what he said on the subject. Manjaro affects two hormone receptors that affect appetite and satiety. So it turns out the combination works a little bit better. And if the medicine is stopped, there is a very good chance that the weight will be regained. So that's the thing. If you take this drug and you lose all this weight and then all of a sudden you stop taking the drug, the weight likely comes back. 
So that's an important thing from an economic point of view and from a physical health point of view. Because what this is, you remember how the tobacco companies made an effort to hook people on cigarettes so that they would have customers for the rest of their life? Well, essentially, I don't know how much Eli Lilly invested into the development of this drug. I'm imagining it's in the billions. But essentially, Eli Lilly is creating people that are going to be taking this drug for the rest of their lives if they want to continue to stave off obesity. I think it's interesting. I'm eager to see what the research suggests. I am eager to see how many people will take this. I suspect, similar to Ozampic, you're going to see tons of people taking this. I think this is going to be, I do buy the estimates that uh, this is going to be the most popular drug of all time. Curious as to your reaction. On 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. Well, some news, I meant to get to this yesterday, but we had too much stuff going on. Some news regarding one of the most famous actors of all time. Here's Johnny. Whether it's horror, whether it's comedy, whether it is drama, whether it is something that's a combination of those, I don't think there's a more identifiable entertainer in the history of Hollywood than Jack Nicholson. Okay, I'll make it as easy for you as I can. I'd like an omelet, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No mayonnaise, no butter, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. For number two, chicken salad sandwich. Hold the butter, the lettuce, the mayonnaise, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. (laughs) Well, anyway, Jack Nicholson has sort of become a recluse. I mean, nobody's seen Jack Nicholson in years. The last public appearance I remember him doing was when he introduced Michelle Obama at the Academy Awards a few years ago. And he might have done something after that. I don't know. Hasn't done much in the way of movies. One of the most recent films I remember him doing was uh, About Schmidt, which I loved. I enjoyed that very much. Uh, I, um, I See, I love Jack Nicholson as an actor, and he strikes me as kind of a weird guy, which I like. I like that whole weirdness. I like his whole shtick. And he made a very rare public appearance at a Lakers game the other day, I think it was Friday night, where he met with fellow celebrity Larry David and received a rapturous reaction from the crowd at the Crypto.com arena. I had no idea they were still playing in the Crypto.com arena. I thought everything crypto sort of burst with Sam Bankman-Fried. I guess not. Um, The 86-year-old Jack Nicholson has shied away from public life the last two years, but he looked healthy. I was somebody that thought that he was probably not in the best of health, which is why we haven't seen him, because he seemed to really enjoy going to those Laker games and um, hanging out with the players, seeing the fans. But it looked like he was healthy. It looked like he was in good spirits. And this was his first Lakers game in years where he's had season tickets since 1970. So who knows? 
Maybe this means we'll see a lot more of Jack Nicholson in the future at Lakers games, and who knows, maybe even on screen. They uh, was giving me 10,000 watts a day, you know, and I'm hot to trot. Next woman takes me on, going to light up like a pinball machine and pay off in silver dollars. <laughs> 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You want to comment on anything we've covered thus far. Jack Nicholson, obesity, the uh, the uh, possibility that this new obesity drug, Munjaro, could become the best-selling drug of all time. And uh, your reaction to any and all of it, 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Um, I'll comment on the, these new diabetes drugs, well, weight loss drugs, whatever they're Right, well, they're both. They're both, them yeah. Well, yeah, because I, I actually take Ozempic for diabetes, and I did go from 218 down to 194 pounds. Wow. But there are side effects and I might have to go off of this medication because my pancreatic enzymes have gone up dramatically, which could be a sign of pancreatitis, which is one of the side effects of these drugs. Now, the other important thing, which you mentioned is that you have to stay on these for life and they're not cheap, which is why insurance companies don't want to pay for them. Mm -hmm. And finally, gastric surgery, which has kind of gone away as far as people talking about it is actually much more effective in the long run safer, and and you don't have to worry about it not working after a certain period of time, because that's another thing about these drugs. They're finding that after a certain period of time, you either have to increase the dosage or they may not uh, work at all. Interesting. So that, that's wow. something that we have to keep in mind. And, and I'm sorry, I'm just going off the Go top ahead. of my head on this. But another, imp- another important thing about Ozempic, and I actually found this to be true, is that it may help uh, control alcohol cravings that they've spoken to people who've taken these drugs and they find that they they are less likely to drink and take other drugs. So it may affect the part of the brain that has to do with um, addiction as well. So this is a very important class of drugs, but I think we have to be very careful about over-promoting them, especially because of the expense. Well, uh, all good points, David. Uh, The expense is no joke. And as, uh, as I indicated Unless you want to regain this weight, you're going to have to take this drug for life. However, for some people that don't want to get the gastric bypass surgery or the lap band, I, I don't know a lot about those type of surgeries, but I know there's two different types of surgeries. And for people that want to do something about obesity and all the health problems that come with it, I think you are going to see a lot of people take this. There's a reason Eli Eli Lilly has invested so heavily in the manufacturing of this drug. Joe is a pharmacist. Joe, what what do you know about this? Uh, The previous caller just really uh, hit on a lot of the stuff I was going to mention. The lifelong uh, need and the necessity at least to take it. Um, uh, Right now, it's such a small population of people have taken it that Frequently, once you get it out to the general public, give it a year or two, you start seeing the weird things showing up. You're hearing anecdotal evidence of uh, hair loss. Um, hair loss? Which, you know, yet to be seen, uh, yeah, for the class. I don't know about, like, specifically for Manjaro, um, but you're, you're just getting, like, the anecdotal stuff, but that's how it starts. Um, I have friends that are on it. Um, they frequently are growing up or at least nauseous. So part of the weight loss is just from that, too. I mean, if you took any drug that put aside the ability that it's it's given you to lose the weight, if you take any drug um, that just makes you nauseous and throw up, you're going to lose weight. So that's like a, you know, an indirect reason of the uh, of the drug causing people to lose weight. 
um, the expense. I had a few a uh, few more things, but um, it, it's not it, it right now. It's got a lot of buzz, but let's wait a year and see. You know, the pink the guy that just called before with the uh, the pancreatic possible issue that that could be a big one. So like if you start seeing people having issues with that, um, you know, between the uh, the hair loss being like something that, okay, you're losing weight, but now you're going bald. Women too. Um, you know, that's a, that might be enough to get you off it. And then if you're having pancreatic issues, and that's going to scare people off of it. Um, just a lot right now. Um, I just filled a prescription 10 minutes before you called for it, and insurance approved it. It's like a prior auth situation. You, you bring in a prescription, and the insurance will deny it until the doctor convinces them. So it went from, say, $1,200, I guess, roughly, and the insurance approved it, but the patient's copay right now is about $600. Well, I mean, that's so, a lot better than $1,200. The, the prescription that you just filled for this, was that someone who was prescribed it for obesity or for uh, diabetes? That was a good question. I, uh, I didn't even put the label on it yet, but uh, I'd have to hold on one second. Oh. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. See, this is exciting. This is scintillating. What's it going to be? Uh, the, doc- the doctor on the uh, on the script for a diagnosis. All right, they, they didn't put a diagnosis, and sometimes that's causing problems too. You have to. Uh, it really should be a diagnosis because certain plans they'll they'll take back the money if it's not if it's not for a covered use. So if you never had diabetes and all of a sudden you're on Manjaro. Um, the insurance could then come back and say, well, it was written for a non-approved use and then take back the money. So that's, that's like an issue, too. Oh, interesting. interesting. So, Joe, given everything that you just raised about uh, pot- potential side effects, about the cost, do you think maybe the people that are predicting that this is going to be the best-selling drug of all time, maybe this is a little much? Maybe they're overstating or overestimating the popular appeal of this drug? Oh, definitely. Years ago, Zenical was the was the capsule that's uh, over the counter now, known as uh, Ally, uh, the active ingredient. Um, it, it, it was it worked. It helped you not absorb fat, but it gave you uh, uncontrollable diarrhea. Interesting. So you, you know that was enough to keep you hard. You never sell it anymore. You go years. You go a year without ever even hearing about it. And at the time, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, very interesting, Joe. Thanks for the education there. Appreciate that, Brian is on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Brian. How you doing, Frank? Listen, I, I'm surprised anyone as fair and intelligent as you uh, is still allowed to be on the radio. It really shocked <laughs> Don't let our secret out, Brian, please. Okay, but let me ask you a question. We're going to Atlantic City now. That's my favorite resort. I grew up there in the 50s. And did, have you ever gone to a hotel where you can take a saltwater bath? Just turn on the tap and get salt water. I don't. I don't. Honestly, I don't think so. At least not in Atlantic City. No. Well, in the old Atlantic City, I'm sorry, you're a little younger. You missed it. And uh, they had when I went there, it was just amazing. I was a youngster, and they had the old Marlboro Blenheim, the Shalfound Haddon Hall. I don't know if you even recognize these names: the Claridge, the Dennis, uh, the Ritz Carlton. and unfortunately, quite a few of them were imploded. And it was exciting. I watched the number of the implosions uh, when Atlantic City went to gambling. And I actually broke down a couple times because they were majestic. I just wish some of the younger people could have gone. And I've traveled extensively in my uh, life. I'm almost 70. And I never 
been any place but the old Atlantic City that was more magnificent. Wow. Eating, yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you what, the next you ask what you should do when you're in Atlanta, next time you're in Atlantic City and you're kind of twiddling your thumbs, go to the historic uh, society, Atlantic City Historical Museum. Well, no, I, I've spent a lot of time there, Brian. And, and just so you know, the Claridge, while it's not a casino anymore, it is still there. And there's a great spot. At, oh, at, yeah, yeah, yeah. Top of the Claridge called uh, the View V U E, and especially if it's a nice day, it's a great place to have a drink outdoors. And thanks for the call. And I hope you have a great time. But I'll just say I was not looking necessarily for things for me to do. I'm just saying others who might want to check out the artwork is really more of a conversational segue kind of thing. Just asking where you could find a list of all the murals. That's, that's adding a little bit more razzle dazzle to that, though. All right, 800-848-9222. Brian Kilmeade coming up in about eight minutes. Evelyn is in Bayonne. Hello there, Evelyn. Frank, uh, I didn't want to hang up and have you say, well, it looks like Evelyn had something else to do. But the last two callers answered my questions partially. First was the side effects, because they say we take an aspirin and there are side effects. And um, what age can you start? Because I work in a school. We have children that are morbidly mm. obese, and I work in an elementary school. So what age? And also, you might lose the weight, but the fat, you have to exercise that off. Otherwise, you become flabby. Yeah, well, look, I can't speak uh, to uh, to w- what level of exercise you're expected to do, but the so far the clinical trials – um, look pretty good. Now, as far as what age, that's such a good question because the FDA has approved this uh, as of last year for children under 18 years of age. So uh, I, thank you for the call, Evelyn. You know how many children struggle with this right now, and especially high school age, how many deal with being teased or bullied because of their weight. I suspect you're going to see a lot of teenagers they're going to be wanting to take advantage of this. I really do think so. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right. And I'm glad I'm getting on before Brian hogs the show and the national audience. I want to welcome him. Welcome to hee-haw. Thank um, you. The thing with, um, with, you know, with weight problems, it's a, it's a touchy subject. It's a complicated subject, but most men, the first physical they take is an autopsy. So I, me personally, I would take a, a thorough physical first and see what's going on before I start taking any, any of these things that have side effects or whatever. I mean, if you tell me my pancreas is going to be doing backflips, I would stay away from it. Uh, pancreas is one organ you cannot live without besides your heart and your brain. But um, as far as, as, as the new audience, Frank, I just want to know one thing. I'm the only person who's ever done this. Has anybody ever called in and said Curtis Lee was a dumb Polak? Oh, stop that, Steve. First of all, you're managing to offend both Curtis fans and Polish people in the same sentence. So uh, I'll just say Curtis is only half Polish. So why, why are you picking only on the Poles? Why not say uh, dumb Italian or dumb half Italian, half Polish? Uh, that strikes me as a cheap shot across the board. 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello there, Charlie. Hello there, Frank. I want to go back to talk about a topic you started off talking about at first hour, which I think is very important. 
You, told, you spoke about defense contractors buying off these uh, think tanks to produce papers for them and uh, bribing politicians and stuff to go their way and uh, trying to manipulate public opinion into wars. And you were ginning up you know, a peace movement, which is anti-war point of view, which I, I know much of what you said is accurate. But I disagree with the overall conclusions, not that defense contractors aren't acting in such manipulative ways. But, I mean, it really is true that Russia is, was invading Ukraine. The vice president's explanation might have treated us all like we were in kindergarten. But it was essentially correct what Kamala Harris said, that Russia was taking over Ukraine, which they don't have the right to do with their independent sovereign country. And China, they clearly have the Communist Party of China, President Xi, clearly has designs on taking over Taiwan. And I wonder that if we, the United States, if we don't do something about it, I don't think anyone else in the world will. And I, I was wondering about what you thought about that, that there's a reason why America spends more on its defense budget than the next 10 nations combined, because that defense spending is necessary. And I wanted to know what you thought about the legitimate national security threats that Russia poses to Ukraine. I mean, if you're living in Ukraine right now, you have a different perspective. And if you're living in Taiwan right now, you have a different perspective. I don't know how many callers you have from Ukraine or Taiwan. Uh, Well, more than you think, uh, Charlie, and a lot of them don't want war either. Thank you, Charlie. Um, We we have a fellow that calls in from Ukraine regularly, and he is um, very pro-negotiated settlement and not uh, continuing to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. You said a lot there. Um, Let me just say, yes. The reason we have a defense budget larger than the next 10 nations combined is because we do behave as the world's policemen. Now, should we? My answer is no. I think part of the reason that has become our foreign policy is because, as you heard, Ike. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. As far as I'm concerned, that's precisely what it's what it's doing. So I don't think anybody, at least not me, I'm not defending Vladimir Putin and saying he was right to invade Ukraine. Certainly not. Uh, my question is, is this America's fight? I don't think it is. And I I just don't. Sorry. And that's one of the reasons I so miss Tucker Carlson's voice on the radio and and on uh, television, because Tucker dealt with these issues in a very meaningful way on a nightly basis. And it's one of the reasons, honestly, where I feel something of an obligation to do more of this now. Because it used to be, if I didn't talk about it, I was relatively certain that two or three million viewers a night would hear Tucker Carlson talk about it. Now, there's nobody talking about it in prime time. Uh, and very not enough people talking about it on the radio. So it's where, it's where I come down. 800-848-9222, uh, 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, you know what? Brian Kilmeade's coming up in a minute. Uh, Those of you that are holding, if you want to keep holding, you're welcome to. But we're going to do the $1,000 Minute in a moment. If you want to 
give a chance at winning $1,000. Be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, we'll see if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can, then you'll be a 1000 there. Simple as that. 800-848-9222. Seventh caller, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The great Ray Charles. Uh, This song was featured in the most recent edition of uh, Ted Lasso. Phenomenal episode, as every season, every episode this season has been. Without further ado, let's see if we can't give away some money as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. You know, some people in the Facebook group say they don't like this. Tough. I like it. But if for the people, and I feel like a lot of people do like this. So if you do like it, you can go ahead and uh, be heard in the Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Without further ado, let us meet today's contestant, Bill, in Baltimore from WCBM. Hello, Bill. Hello. Bill, have you heard this segment before? Yes, I have. Okay, so you know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. All right. You say it, you give a question, I give an answer. Boom. That's it. Simple as that. You ready to go? Yes, sir. What is the official currency of the United States? Dollar. What former U.S. Senator and Attorney General was the father of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Joseph Kennedy. No, I am sorry. Uh, the father of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Oh. was Robert F. Kennedy. <laughs> sorry. That was his grandfather, uh, who was never Attorney General. Thank you, Bill. All right. Uh, that was uh, that was supposed to be one of the easy ones. Bill, stay on the line. Give Kenneth your information, and uh, we are going to... Give you a consolation prize of some sort. See, that's the thing you, with this game. The reason it's challenging is you can't rush, can't rush the answers, right? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll try and get to your calls in a bit. All right. Last week on this program, the podcast of this show broke records. Now, breaking podcast records or viewership records is no stranger to the man who made it possible, but we owe him quite a de- debt of gratitude because. He unloaded both barrels on Steve Bannon, which uh, allowed us to make quite a bit of news. And people went back and downloaded the show. They said, well, boy, what what did Brian Kilmeade say? We better go back and listen. So today the challenge is to find who we can get him to comment on critically that will similarly make news. Let me welcome my friend, New York Times bestselling author, the co-host of Fox and Friends on Fox News, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, uh, Brian Kilmeade. Brian, it's great to talk with you. Yeah, what's going on, Frank? How are you doing? I, I'm doing great. Were you surprised that our conversation last week sort of took on a, a life of its own and there were so many people writing about it and talking about it? 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't even realize where I was talking. I think you just asked me about all the people uh, that were uh, upset with me because I'm filling in for Tucker after uh, they had an impasse with management, and I, I just don't understand why people would weigh in on that. Um, so I'm just pretty – still. I answered your question and ended up being a big deal. Hey, hey well, it uh, goes to show a substantive answer uh, definitely carries some weight for a lot of people. Well, whenever you have any inside baseball that you want to share, you're certainly welcome to uh, to do it uh, to do it with me. I appreciate that. Hey, uh, let me ask you about this. You were one of the first people to say that uh, Glenn Youngkin had a great shot at winning the governor yeah. of Virginia. And then almost after, right after he was elected, you were one of the first guys to say this fella has national appeal. Well, this week, Glenn Youngkin came out and said he's not running. Are you going to be dusting off that fleece jacket and getting out on the presidential campaign trail later this year? No, no. I'm going to be, I'm going to be working. I'm going to be working in Virginia this year. Brian, were you surprised at Yunkin taking himself out of the uh, presidential contest? And do you think this is a reflection of Trump's strength in the polls at this point? I think it could be uh, because he is a he's got the one term. You can't you can't even say, well, he's only been doing the job a year. Well, he's going to be out of a job in three years. So and and I was also uh, one of the guys that just did a day in the life with Glenn Yunkin. So he has a job for about six weeks, maybe a little bit longer. And then we went down there. and We just met him in the morning. And we spent a whole day with him. So we had three stops. And I watched the way he digested, memorized speeches. I saw the interaction with people. Uh, I, you, know, you got a chance to see him in action and his knowledge of history and the famous building, the Capitol building in Virginia. And you thought the money was flowing in. And evidently, almost immediately, they were setting up a mirror campaign, I thought, to get him running for president. But then he looks around and he just says, I'm young. Uh no way, you know, why do I want to take on the, the Trump machine? Probably. Uh, he's very different than I am, but I have nothing against him. He helped him do phase one of the China deal because of all his Chinese connections, which he was not running from. He says, listen, I know these guys and I know how to deal with them. So it would have been an asset. But he says, yeah, I know he's going to be gone in four years either way. Either he's going to be president or he's going to lose. So even if he gets the nomination, he's mm. got four more years. He's got to be term limited out. So to me, it kind of makes sense because he'll be done and they'll have two years to, to run for president after that because there's no, way, there's no doubt he will eventually run. Last week, we spent a little bit of time talking about Donald Trump's uh, decision to, at least at this point, skip the first two Republican primary debates. You brought to our attention last week, you were the first person I heard mention it, that RFK Jr. was at 19% in the polls. Now that's been widely covered. Is there going to come a point, because I do think RFK is going to have a moment where he gets benefits from a lot of free media attention and a lot of people look for an alternative to Biden among Democrats. Is there going to come a point with these Kennedy poll numbers, and I realize that when it's an incumbent president, it's a different ball game. Jimmy Carter never debated Ted Kennedy. Uh, G- George H.W. Bush never debated Pat Buchanan. Bill Clinton never debated Lyndon LaRouche. But is there going to come a point where Kennedy's poll numbers get so high that Biden is sort of shamed into debating him and maybe Marianne Williamson as well? Where do you see no. that going? No. 
I absolutely don't. I mean, I think just keep your eye on uh, this whistleblower, this FBI whistleblower that came out and talked about what the Biden Fed, what Joe Biden directly was doing affecting foreign policy is the uh, allegation uh, by doing private deals when he was vice president and what he could be doing now. I mean, what is his affinity with China? He just, again, we're uh, supplementing Chinese solar panels. Now even the Senate's going to look to override that ridiculous move by the Biden administration. You see how China's running wild all over South America, Latin America, Central America. And you think to yourself, why is he looking the other way? And now let's we'll see what this whistleblower has to say. But if our, if, if, if uh, Joe Biden drops out, is, he, is uh, the only way we have debates. And that's Gavin Newsom was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It's Governor Pritzker. Um, uh, maybe Jared Polis, um, you know, maybe the governor of Kentucky. These people w- will get in. But it's just whether, you know, this reports, too, about Joe Biden having even less energy now. He needs days off in between. We don't even know what he's doing for two or three days. Do you know he has nothing on the schedule for the next two days? Yeah, and, and, and they're going to start bolstering up the vice president. That's not a right-wing uh, media outlet uh, reporting that. That's Axios, which, if anything, is probably um, you know kind of left-leaning. So it's not, not as left, if yeah. it's not as if this is the, the right-wing hit machine saying that Joe Biden is only essentially a nine-to-five president at best. But um, going back to Trump's situation, he's doing really well polling-wise for whatever that's worth. Next week, he's doing this town hall meeting in New Hampshire on CNN. A lot of the CNN viewers are outraged. A lot of the Democratic pundits are outraged that they're giving Trump a megaphone. A lot of conservatives are saying that Trump should essentially treat CNN and other forms of legacy media the way that DeSantis is, which is to marginalize them and ignore them. Where do you come down on this, Brian? Do you think Trump's doing the right thing by going on CNN next week? Those channels treat him like a subhuman. And even for that to be the argument, in what planet do you not interview, would give, if given the opportunity, a former president who is leading the Republican side for the nomination to be the next president? Where, where On what planet is that not news and worthy of your time? Well, you don't want to normalize him. What if he lied? Oh, excuse me. Joe Biden tells one lie after another, ridiculous stories about seeing two men holding hands kissing in the 1950s and his dad leaning over and said they love each other, son, when you know that never in a million years happened. All his ridiculous stories that don't line up on a regular basis. The press secretary saying border crossings are down 90 percent. Nobody has any problem with this. But if you don't like something Donald Trump says, you know, that, that's inaccurate, that never happened, which a lot of stuff, Leslie Stahl, uh, the, all that stuff about Russian disinformation, um, uh, the laptop being real, that Leslie Stahl says that they all said it was not real and there was no Russian disinformation, all that stuff ended up being true. They don't even want to acknowledge that, that they were wrong on the whole Russian investigation that took two and a half years and millions, maybe billions of dollars. You don't want to acknowledge the press was wrong. And now he emerges as the front runner again. And he's been remarkably disciplined over the last three, three, uh, three, four weeks while a rape trial goes on per civil. And while the other accusations, well, oh, the, the indictment takes place, two more could be coming. Trump has been pretty disciplined. Oh, you don't. If you don't want to interview Donald Trump, you should not be a news channel. 
Uh, and do you, from his perspective, given what you said, that they treat Trump, as you said, as a subhuman, do you think he's making the right decision by choosing to go on there and reach the CNN audience? I think he is. If I'm, I'm the Trump team, and by the way, and I've said this before, he's had three teams, 2016, uh, no offense to the to the very the very unique series of uh, of campaign heads, Kellyanne Conway, obviously the best. Brad Parscale at, with his uh, online uh, plan in 2016 shocked the world. In 2020, was not a good team at all, uh, even though he had the White House. But the pandemic threw him. Getting the get you know getting COVID threw him. Never got in gear. Uh, he's got a great team now. He's got a great. Uh, he's got a quick reaction team. And if he wants to go on and give them one more shot, uh, I think it's a good move. And if they come out and they just start cutting him off and not let him finish, it's that was their shot. But, you know, Matt Lauer, I remember Matt Lauer did a good job with him leading up to the 2020 election. And he got eviscerated because he just treated him like a normal candidate. Challenged him when he couldn't. And they challenged Hillary Clinton and they got eviscerated. So that's uh, that's the risk on the left. But. If they do a good, fair job, I mean, look at what Vivek Ramaswamy's doing. He did Meet the Press over the weekend. He did CNN three or four times, famous sit-down with Don Lemon. He does our show. He does a business channel here. Did my radio show last week. Right. He's doing the Trump – that's the Trump game plan. I, I want him, I'll answer all your questions. Call me up. Doesn't matter what the format is. I can take it. And he is, is a really good guest on everything from AI to the economy to – well, the bank collapse. I mean, I can't tell you how many meetings I'm in. And they go, how about Vivek Ramaswamy? I'm like, yeah, that's right. It's one of his expertise. So he's got like five areas of expertise. He's doing the Trump plan. Now, I'm not she's sure he's going to get the results. But that's why come one, come all. Uh, and that's when Trump's most comfortable. Remember Trump walking up and down the line? Go, go, go. We have a president that brags about giving us 10 minutes, uh, 10 minutes by a chopper once a week. Now, now twice a month. And he brags about not being accessible to the press. And you had a previous president that said, I don't need a press secretary. I'll answer all my questions directly. So please understand, from the press perspective, if you treat him fairly, you will have access and you will have a daily story. It's when you stop treating him fairly, focusing on Russia and family and all this other stuff is when you realize it doesn't matter what legislation they did, what they were doing at the border, they were just going to focus on something that made them look bad. The um, One of the big issues, especially going into next week when uh, Title 42 uh, goes, uh, goes up in flames, is uh, the situation at the border. And in New York, we're seeing the costs of this. We're seeing this in a lot of the border states, and uh, we're seeing a lot of ramifications of this when it comes to domestic politics. I don't think I've seen a better discussion about this than your interview with the mayor of El Paso. Uh, The president says he's sending 1,500 troops down to the border so that the situation doesn't get out of control. Where do you see the domestic political implications of this after next week? Cities like El Paso, but also cities that have been on the receiving end of these migrants, cities like New York, Chicago, etc. Where do you see this going, Brian? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's unavoidable. I mean, for this mayor of El Paso to come up and say the president's doing everything possible, he's a Democrat. Are you kidding me? Know what you're saying? You're saying, I don't care about my people. 
I want to go to the big parties in Washington. I want to be able to get a call into the White House. I want to get a thank you from the president. I want to pretend that I showed the president a, a, a real good, candid look at what El Paso's like. As I'm interviewing this mayor of El Paso, I'm splitting the screen with video that shows this city has been overwhelmed with human bodies, sleeping, standing with blankets, other people dressed up trying to get to work. And this mayor of El Paso sits there and say, yeah, the president's doing everything he can and he's been very receptive. No, uh, you, you should be ashamed of yourself. People put you in that office to make minimal amount of money, but to represent them. And you decided you want to represent your party. And he won't even take on these mayors that are saying that you are busing them there because you don't like black people. I mean, our mayor, Adams, saying that Governor Abbott is only shipping illegal immigrants to cities with black mayors is such an insult to people who really see racial issues in this country and want to change things. Now, I mean, everybody rolling their eyes. Are you kidding me? Governor Abbott last night, and I'll play some of those cuts, responded. But you know they're asking to go to New York. You know it's a sanctuary city. You know that he's already pledged to give everybody food and clothing and a, a beautiful hotel to live in. So why wouldn't you come to New York as opposed to sleeping on the street in El Paso? It's a great question. Uh, Brian, what can we look forward to? You've been killing it on the weekends with One Nation. What do you have in store this Saturday? Do you have this show, this Saturday go- show? I'm going to do yet? a, you know, I haven't said, thank you, Frank. Uh, I, I haven't said yet, but I might be leading with uh, AI. And, you know, yesterday, I don't know if you saw, but made a lot of news. Bill Hemmer came on, and Bill Hemmer's got a lot of great questions. He's like, we're, we're up in the air, and then I'm playing the latest IBM CEO. The other day it was the founder of AI who resigned from Google to go tell people he he's worried. We know Elon Musk sat down with Bill Maher and, and Tucker to talk about it. He's like, listen, guys, you don't understand what's coming. So we asked AI to look at our last segment, or, or Eric did behind the board, look at our last segment about Brian Kilmeade and Bill Hemmer have legitimate questions about the future of AI. And they wrote a poem about it, literally in five seconds. And then they put it to voice. And a woman read this poem about our last segment, generated from AI, created in seven seconds. So I just think that maybe Will Hurd, who's leading the charge there, might be my lead guest. And we're going to talk about, going to talk about that. And I'm going to definitely be pursuing this Biden situation and see what emerges by Saturday. On uh, on this whistleblower that's come forward about uh, flat out deals that Biden made uh, that affected foreign policy might be affecting it today. So uh, we'll talk about those two things for sure. And Richard Dreyfus, oh, uh, Richard Dreyfus, a legendary actor, will be in studio today. He's going to be joining me on Saturday. Uh, that's I, I can't wait to see both of those because uh, what he's uh, talking about in terms of civics education is uh, long overdue in this country, and that shouldn't be a partisan issue at all. By the way, while we, while you were talking, I just had uh, Chat GPT write out a song parody about you to the tune of "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." So I know you're a sports fan. I'm going to send this over to you in the event. Did that you really? Sat- yeah, absolutely. Uh, the uh, the chorus <laughs> is "Take me out to the newsroom. Take me out to the fight." Brian Kilmeade's always talking. He's never out of sight. That's the that's the chorus. But there's some some decent parts of this. It's not as good as that poem for you and Bill Hammer. But I'm going to email <laughs> this to you now. And uh, and if you do an AI show on Saturday, you know, throw this into the hobo stew. Brian, it's always a treat to talk with you. Thanks for spending Thursdays with us. 
Uh, continue success, Frank. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Likewise, Brian Kilmeade, check him out on TV. Check him out on radio. Uh, this is a rare week. This is practically a week off for him because he's only doing six hours a day during the week instead of his normal seven. And uh, in addition to that hour on the weekend, plus uh, the appearances for shows like this. 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight, the band is Stevie G and the money-wasting, whiskey-tasting, drunken bums. Available on iTunes for 99 cents. Without further ado, tomorrow's Friday. Wow, where did the week go? I feel like I just walked in. My goodness. All right, without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Alan! Good morning, Frank. May the fourth be with you. Your monologue on the military-industrial complex was one of the best I've ever heard. Thank you. E. Frank. Yes, uh, Frank. Uh, you know the city of New York and its five boroughs is having a crime surge with um, murder and other crimes. Why don't they bring back a commissioner that's a traditionalist and a career police officer? Larry. You had two great callers tonight, Vinny and Adrian, making great anthropological uh, comments. And if you didn't understand Vinny, you shouldn't characterize his argument as racist, okay? Raji. Indeed. Instead of a $1,000 prize daily to attract more listeners, WABC is cheating. $100 winners with eight correct answers. Rusty. Yeah, where does he get off calling the mayor his friend? I would be ashamed to call that guy my friend. He's just a racist. But he, they play the game. It's like the good cop, bad cop routine. And finally, Pete. Since moron, since moron. Uh, Rick. Good morning. I don't believe Joe Biden will be alive by Christmas. Well, we certainly hope he will be. All right. That slams the lid on things for today. Tomorrow, ask Frank anything. Come armed with good questions. In the words of the great Jerry Springer, be good to yourself and each other.